Deputy Alex Collins leads us through the events that end up with the final confrontation with ex-LAPD officer Christopher Dorner. When we were walking up, it was uh, myself, King, and then uh, McKay was behind King. So King and McKay kind of break off from me to go talk to the two NARC guys at the uh, front bumper of the Dodge Durango and tell them what we're doing. The uh, King tells them that um, the SVD units had... Uh, uh, taken off down the road, continued, and we're going to check this cabin uh, and mention something about the tire tracks as I continue. Uh, I don't stop with them. I continue to walk uh, along the roadway, just kind of looking down at the footprints, and then as I'm getting closer to the tire tracks. As I get closer to the tire tracks, that's when uh, I break that first plane of the, um, the living room window where Dorner was. He was offset, uh, you know, backed up from the window a little bit in the living room. And as soon as I break that uh you know, that plane in the window, he uh, starts shooting at me. Welcome to Game of Crimes. What, what about the 8th, going into the 8th? Because, I mean, the weather's going to start deteriorating, right? Things start getting a little dicey. Yeah, so we're doing that. We're doing, uh, like, we were setting up uh, grid searches, searching cabins, because there are so many uh, vacation cabins up there. They were going up there looking for any signs of 4th century. If there was anything, uh, you know, whether it was a um, an overtime team, a patrol team they were contacting, our, uh, our specialized enforcement division, they would go up with armor uh, and check the house and do that. So at that time of year, um, how many of those houses, are, are those all people's like second homes or the majority of those rentals? Give us an idea for that area. What, you know, when we talk about all of these different places, because I mean, I'm looking at a couple of these over 400 cabins were searched on one day, 200 on another. I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of territory to cover. What are most of these vacation rental seasonal? What are they? Yeah. Especially in that area, uh, they're going to be all pretty much, you know, probably 95% rentals. Cause they're right there. It was right there at the ski resort. And that's a pretty, uh, um, uh, high area for, you know, vacation rentals for the ski season. And then in the off season, they do like the downhill mountain bike stuff. Uh, so a lot of, a uh, lot of vacation rentals. Wow. So, um, are you now, are you and your partner, you guys are just tied at the hip basically during this whole time? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, King and I were doing everything we can, uh, any leads that we can follow up. We're setting up, uh, just kind of doing the planning aspect of it for, uh, uh, the grid searches, uh, kind of the graveyard shifts, uh, what areas that they're responsible for, um, and then give them and like, hey, this is, you know, from this street to this street, this is your uh, your beat for uh, the next 12 hours. Wow. So how did you guys work the staffing and stuff? Were, were you guys on 12-hour shifts or were you just working until you just couldn't work anymore, get a few hours sleep and back out again? How did they handle that? Yeah, so we were just doing uh, like uh, 12 on, 12 off. Now, were you staying at the command center? Or were you guys going back home? You know, how were you guys handling that part? Uh, some of the guys were going home. Our SED teams, they were staying at uh, one of the local hotels. And then uh, one of the um, vacation rental companies reached out to us. And they uh, uh, said, hey, there's several families that want to offer uh, their vacation rentals to you guys. Uh, so you guys can go um, uh, could sleep there for the night. So we did that. And it was, it was actually kind of nice. We, uh, we stayed there. Uh, at one of the cabins a couple nights and we were able to wash our clothes and, and get some decent sleep and we didn't have to commute with that snow being so bad. And then it was good too that we're in the area just in case uh, something did happen. 
Yeah, because I'm, I'm reading, like I said, some of these reports, and they're talking about knee-high snow in some of these areas. I mean, you guys got people are just freaking trudging. You think you think you're with uh, San Bernardino County? It sounds more like you're with the Alaska State Troopers, you know, yeah, going it, through the mountains up there. Yeah, it was bad. I know, like I think the skiers, like this, uh, the um, like the snowboard shots and Kmart's, all the all the deputies that were from our valley stations, they went and bought a bunch of uh, you know long johns and gloves and all that kind of stuff from there. That's that's pretty cool that the community came together like that and offered up places for you guys to stay. That's that's very admirable. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was it was really nice that they did that for us. Well, you were saying that the folks up there, you guys got a really good relationship though. I think with a lot of the folks in Big Bear uh, and that uh, Bear Lake, you know, area, right? I mean, they they pretty supportive of you guys, and uh, you've got a good relationship with them because they really depend upon. Uh, you know, you're the only ones out there. Yeah, absolutely. Very law enforcement friendly, uh, great community. They're very supportive of, of me and then, uh, you know, me coming back to work and then um, Jeremiah McKay's family as well. So things kind of stall though for a while, right? So for a couple, three days, it's like no sightings, no nothing, right? I mean, you're just up there chasing things. I mean, at what point do you think we've lost this guy? He's no longer up here. Yeah. So probably like three days into it, I'm like, with all, as bad as the snow was, I was like, man, this guy... He probably took off because we had our aviation units up as well. Um, you know, the sheriff's farm, we have several helicopters and stuff like that and, and fixed wing airplanes. And um, but then with the snow, we couldn't fly those anymore. Uh, we had we have bloodhounds as well. Uh, they followed a couple cents, but with the snow, it just kind of made it hard, the cold weather. Um, so I, I, I figured I'm like, hey, this guy probably took off in the mountains because people get lost up here all the time and didn't have uh, the proper um, cold weather gear and we're going to find them when the snow, snow melts in, in April dead. So that was kind of my thought, uh, for a little bit or, um, someone, he had someone that was helping him and they picked him up and, and, and drove him out He's of the, out area. Of the area. Yeah. yeah. So, cause the other thing too, it ratchets it things up. Cause on February 10th, uh, Via Grossa, who was the LA mayor, they put out a $1 million reward. They put out a warrant, you know, no bail warrant. So he's been charged. Now, with the attempted murder of three other police officers, including a Riverside police officer who was wounded, uh, with Crane was killed, also charged with that. Uh, he also said they also said he opened fire on the two LAPD officers. So this guy's they've got the warrants in hand. You know, this guy's the most wanted person in the United States at that point. And uh, this is the 11th. So this whole thing starts. I mean, you know, you start you find the truck on the 7th, and now it's the 11th. It's four days in. So. You know, what happens during those four days? I mean, did you feel like you made any progress at all? Or is it just kind of like you can only keep that heightened state of alert and that adrenaline up for so long before you just kind of like, man, this is just exhausting. Yeah, it was really it was really frustrating um, with that. And then I think on uh, so it started on Thursday, I think on like Sunday or Monday, we start kind of scaling everything back. Uh, we moved the command post um, to the station, which is uh, probably about a mile away. Um down the road. So we scale that back. Uh, we start sending a lot of the patrol guys, uh, back to their uh, normal duties. Um, our SED teams, we have one on standby, one day shift, one graveyard. And then the rest of the teams went back to, uh, uh their headquarters and kind of would handle, um, daily duties, uh, with that. Well, how are, how are your communications during that time in the mountainous area there? Do you guys have good comms? Yeah. Our comms weren't too bad. Um, so again, like we kept everything in house, uh, just one of those big reasons with communications and tactics. So, and we had enough personnel to handle, uh, the searches and the equipment and stuff like that. So we, we kept our agency, uh, on the search, 
Um, a lot of people were offering help and everything, uh, but we wanted to keep that in-house, uh, at least during that manhunt in Big Bear, uh, since it was Seminole County in our area. And then, uh, so that wasn't too bad, but yeah, once our, we had some leads that we would follow up on some cabins and stuff. Um, but yeah, our SED teams would go out there. They, you know, hike out. One of my, my brothers was on the team and I think they lost radio comms with them for, for several hours. And that was, uh, I remember me and my older brother, Ryan are at the command post. We're kind of stressing out a little bit. Um, but finally they, uh, they, you know, made their way back and they were okay. Well, so this world leading up to, so that was Monday, um, February 11th, 2013. And now, like you say, it's kind of, it was like one day off. They scaled back, you know, which they didn't know, but they scaled back a day too early because this is when shit hits the fan is on February 12th, 2013. So let's finish up the 11th, right? So that's a Monday. They're scaling things back. You and your partner working stuff. You know, what are you doing on the 11th going into the 12th? I mean, have you guys thought, hey, this is the end of it, you know, pretty much over, he's gone? Yeah, so on the 11th, uh, we went to, um, King and I went to uh, the local, like the uh, the water district and the electric companies, and we were looking for any uh, spike in usage on a cabin, like a dormant, dormant cabin uh, for maybe several months that Dorner might have been hiding in. And then, so we got that list, uh, and we found a cabin, uh, and it was kind of in the area where we thought were um, a couple days prior, our bloodhounds followed a scent that we thought in that direction. And it was a cabin kind of out in the middle of nowhere uh, and had a really big spike in uh, in water. I'm like, oh, this is kind of, that was dormant for several months and then had a spike in water around that same time. So uh, we're like, man, this is a pretty good lead. Uh, so we contact our aviation unit, uh, King and I do, and we're like, hey, we need to um, get some aerial photos because now the, uh, the snow had stopped. We need to get some aerial photos of this house so we can... Uh, brief up our SED team so they can go check this cabin since it was going to be, they could only drive a certain distance and they were going to hike in the rest of the way. So, uh, King and I, we meet them. Uh, Big Bear has a small little airport. We meet our aviation unit at the airport and, uh, we're, they're like, Hey, we can only take one of you guys up, uh, in the helicopter with us. So King and I are, are arguing about who gets to <laughs> go in the helicopter. And I, I think we ended up playing like rock, paper, scissors or something. So uh, and who won? I won. Uh, <laughs> oh, what do what did you win with rock paper or scissors? I don't I don't remember. I just remember uh, I I got to go in the helicopter and, and take these photos and stuff. And then uh, afterwards, I several months after, I told Jeremy, I'm like, man, you should have taken that helicopter ride because uh, I got shot the next day and I got to ride in the helicopter two days in a row. So yeah, I'm like, oh, you should have taken that that flight for the photographs. So, dark humor, dark humor. Yeah. <laughs> but so we uh, we go find this cabin. I felt bad too for these guys that had to hike in there. So they go and they spend like pretty much most of the day hiking to this cabin and it ends up being a broken water pipe. And, uh, that was, it was just kind of that same thing over and over again, just kind of a dead end lead. Yeah. But you know, but stuff. that's, but, but that's the tough part about doing so. You just got to, you got to just grind it through these leads. I mean, even it's like you got to plow through the records. And I thought that that's actually a really good idea because if somebody's going to stay in a cabin, what are they going to do? You know, they're going to have to use water or something or maybe turn on, you know, heat or something like that. You know, you look for electricity. Yep. Um, did any of those leads that you generated at all, did it, were any of those any places, any places that Dorner had been? No. Mm -mm. Were they around the same area? Uh, yeah, in, in the general area of where he was okay, at. Okay, so but that that's what I'm saying. That kind of kept you in the area, though. It's like not you weren't zeroed in on him, but you guys were staying in the area. But... So that's the 11th. You take the helicopter. Let, let's talk about the, the big day, which is obviously going to be, you know, February 12th. That's Tuesday, February 12th, 2013. So 
How's this day start off for you? Uh, I think it was our captain was talking shit about how we didn't haven't found this guy yet, and he's kind of he's a really funny guy, but he's just he's just uh, you know always always yelling, you know, you guys suck. How come you haven't found this guy? <laughs> just you know making jokes and stuff like that. Um, what have you done for me today? <laughs> yeah. So uh, we end up. Someone calls in. It was a resident up there. And I'm trying to remember correctly, but I think she said that she saw Dorner on the 7th walking in the neighborhood, carrying a duffel bag and walking down this street into the forest area. And she waited, you know, four days or five days to call because she was scared or didn't put it together or anything like that. So uh, King and I were at the office. And again, like I said, I was uh, I was out of tired of ruining my dress shoes. So I, I wasn't going to wear a suit that day and neither did Jeremy. So we wore, uh, just kind of BDU pants and boots and our, uh, department polos and, um, you know, our, our green, I just got this new, uh, it was a five eleven saber jacket that I freaking loved, had a nice hood and everything like that. So I was wearing that. Um, so for the folks that don't know five tactical five eleven is a clothing brand really designed for first responders, military cops and stuff. They've got a lot of Good stuff. A lot of people get gear from that. But but give us an idea, though, about what you carry with you. So you geared up with your BDUs and stuff. So what 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 are you carrying with you now? Everything from, you know, weapons and body armor and stuff. How are you How are you outfitted when you go out that day? Yeah, so I uh, was wearing just BDU, and then I had a, uh, a tack vest that I recently put together just on my own. Um, active shooter stuff was really big. We were getting a bunch of active shooter training from the department. Um, so I wanted to get a vest together. It was just a Molly, uh, just a condor vest uh i was again a broke deputy with a brand new baby so i did not have the thousand dollars for the uh the rifle plates so i just had my brother gave me an old vest with soft body armor so i put that in there and then uh which is better than detectives don't even wear vests pretty much anyway so at least i had had something on you had something yeah but it had uh, rifle magazines uh pistol magazines and then uh, uh some extra um slug rounds for our shotgun and then again, just my, uh, my, I had, uh, just gotten a new pistol. It was a, uh, Springfield Armory XDM. I just gotten it for Christmas. So I, I had that on with me. So let folks know what a Springfield XDM is. What caliber is it? You know, how much does it hold? Yeah, it was a, a nine millimeter and it holds a 19 plus one, 19 rounds. Plus one, plus in, the one chamber. in the chamber. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's so did, how, I mean, there's always kind of that debate too, right? Between should we go nines, should we go forties? You know, you know, ten millimeter if you're the Smith and Wesson. So, um, what what did you? I mean, was there a weapon you preferred? I mean, obviously you you were wanting to get on SED. You had to be training with weapons and stuff. Did you like that weapon? Do, would you have preferred something different? Yeah, so I like that one. Uh, our SED team, they're the only ones that can carry it, but they're issued the uh, uh, Kimber uh, 1911s. They're specially made for our team. They're all nice forty fives. Uh, yeah, 45 uh, serialized numbers with uh, SBSD, you know, one through however many. Um, so it's uh, it's one of the cool things to, to be over there. So you, you see someone carrying a 1911, you know, they're on uh, on your SED team. Cool. It's also a fashion statement, too. It's, you know, like, uh, I drive a Porsche. What oh. do you drive? A Volkswagen. No, yeah. I, I got a, yeah. I got a 1911. Yeah. So, but yeah, I like the Springfield. The, so we, uh, the department issues Glocks. Um, nine or 45 so you can carry that or you can buy your own uh uh personal weapon uh if you choose to do that it just has to get inspected um by the range you know with the trigger pull and everything meets uh the specifications for that but i like the xdm because it was uh it had like the polished uh steel slide on it 
Um, so I thought it looked cool. And it holds, you know, 20 rounds. Old, sold some ammo. You get that and, you know, carry three mags with you, man. You got, you know, close to 80 rounds you can throw down range. But somebody else I know that's on this podcast love to carry a polished little <laughs> weapon. What are you talking about? Murph. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, Smith & Wesson no, happens no to sit in the museum somewhere in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's that's a... Uh, that's a uh, that's a perfect undercover gun because it's stainless steel and it doesn't have a hammer. So if you sweat on it, it doesn't rust. And when you pull it out from under your shirt, it doesn't snag. But, you know, you, you know, Alex, you were talking about your body armor there and you had soft body armor. And I don't want to get ahead of us here, but everybody just keep that in mind when the first shot is fired, when we get to the actual incident here. Because uh, your body armor, as, as, as nice as a comfortable feeling as it gives you, it wouldn't have helped anyway. So we'll get to that point. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you guys start off, your captain's giving you shit, ration of shit. You guys gear up and you head out. Just walk us through the day now. Yeah. So we go and we follow up that lead. Um, that's kind of in the, the late morning. Um, I think we went and talked to that lady, uh, checked the area, uh, where she said he went, um, met up with my brother, Ryan, who was working, uh, patrol watch commander that day. Um, we walk around the snow for a little bit, <laughs> get wet. Uh, and then we head back to the, uh, the station um to go grab some lunch so we're sitting at the station uh in the detective office and then dispatch puts out that uh a lady had just called in that her and her husband were at uh arrived at their vacation condo uh and Dorner was inside pointed uh his uh, rifle at him uh tied him up uh put dish rags in their mouth and stole the keys to their uh, brand new uh, maroon colored nissan rogue and fled well, there was one problem, though. Let's um, yeah. <laughs> typical cop man. You're just facts only. Let's not gloss over a lot of the story. The, the part of the story was this was a new Nissan Rogue. In fact, two things: it was so new you didn't even know what it looked like, so you had to Google it. And the other one too, that was one of the first times where they had the keyless start. Yeah. So Dorner was flummoxed by the fact here's a guy, a Navy guy, couldn't untie a boat, and now he can't start a vehicle. So uh, t- tell us about that. Yeah. So he. Uh... T- took the keys, couldn't figure out how to start the car um, with the push-the-button start. So he had to run back inside the house or the condo, uh, take the dish rag out of the, the wife's mouth, and she goes how, and ask her how, how to start the car. And she goes, oh, you, you know, just push that button on the dash. Uh, so he ended up leaving the uh, the residence with, or without putting the dish rag back in her mouth. So she was able to uh, uh, get her phone. He threw him under the couch when he left and called 911. But it took her about 30 minutes um, to make that phone call. But you guys got some good intelligence now. You know what he's driving. You know what color it is. Uh, even though it's thirty minutes, where, 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 based on where that cabin was at, where can he go in that thirty minutes? Uh, I, he can he can make it pretty good. I mean, like to get to the bottom of the mountain with the road conditions like that, it'd probably take him a little over an hour. But uh, he can travel some distance um, and then get to like kind of a you know less populated area where someone's not going to spot that Nissan Rogue. But there aren't that many ways in and out of a mountain area like that, are there? No, there's this, there's three major ways out of uh, three actually three ways out of a uh, Big Bear. It's Highway 38, and then um, which is the back way, and then Highway 330, uh, which we call it the front way, uh, which is the more pop- popular way to go. Uh, it leads you right down to the freeway. Um, the Highway 38 will it drops you off at, to the city of Ukaipa. Now back in that condo, though, where the where he tied up that couple. He had he was getting ready for a firefight, wasn't he? 
Yeah, he was. He uh, he was in there the entire time that we were out there looking for him. Um, he had his 308 sniper rifle, had a table moved up towards the window with a direct view uh, right to our command post at the uh, golf course. Yeah, um, how close? Let him. How close was he with that 308 to the uh, command center? From where he was at, how close was he to the command center? Uh, maybe about 100, 200 yards. So, what kind of a shot would that have been for somebody with a scoped 308 like that? Oh, do that all day. Yeah. Not that's not a tough shot. Not at all. Hopefully, he would have his rifle zeroed in at you know 100 yards, but so he would, you know, point of aim, point of impact on that. But now you're getting this bolo out, so now they've got the information out. So what happens next? You're getting the information out. Um, what happens next with the, the search now for Dorner? Yeah, so we, we run out of the station. Um, we're getting uh, Jeremy King's detective uh, car. And everyone, all the patrol guys, including my brother Ryan, they start going towards the condo to uh, help the uh, husband and wife out. So we, we, King and I initially started going up there as well. And then uh, King goes, hey, he's probably... He probably getting out of the area because now he now he knows. Um, so he's like he probably went down Highway 38, which is the back way. He's like, let's just start, let's just go down that way. Um, hey Alex, I mean, it's does he know this area or is he just getting lucky trying to get out of there? It sounds like he doesn't know it because he's crashed a couple you know times, crashed his other vehicle. But did did he have any prior knowledge of this area or had he been up in the area before? You know, when you guys did the after action. Uh, not that I know of. I mean, maybe he went up there once or twice, but I don't think he had any, uh, like, any good, you know, sense of... He didn't have local knowledge like you guys had, obviously. No, 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 not at all. All right, so what happens? Yeah, so we start going down Highway 38, uh, just thinking about, uh, you know, where he could have gone. And uh, I remember I Googled uh, a Nissan Rogue, and I looked it up on my phone. And because I told Jeremy, I'm like, hey, we are not going to be like the LAPD guys and shoot some innocent citizens. <laughs> I'm like, so I put it and I put my phone in front of his face. I'm like, hey, this is what we're looking for. And I remember he like slapped my hand. He's like, get, get that shit out of my face. I'm trying to drive. So uh, and how fast were you trying to drive? Uh, I don't I don't know. I don't want to think about it. But <laughs> yeah, faster than we probably should have been uh, with no no destination where we're going. <laughs> Yeah. Just you needed to get there. So, I mean, you're looking for this rogue Nissan. Now that you guys know what a Nissan Rogue looks like, uh, wh where are you guys headed? Where, where do you go? So we're going down Highway 38, um, just seeing just our, our major highway uh, down down the back way. And then everyone's kind of um, heading up to Big Bear once this information comes out. So uh, our SED team that was stationed up there at the time was actually on the opposite side of the mountain. They're in our Lake Arrowhead falling up on a lead um, that – Dorner's mom had ties to some cabin over there or something like that. Uh, so they were actually like probably an hour away from actually being in the city of Big Bear. So all our Valley teams start coming up. And I think a couple of people started coming up Highway 38, just kind of all from all directions, um, including uh, Detective McKay, who was a station detective at our Ukaipa station, which is, uh, like I said, it, it's um, right down there at the bottom of Highway 38. So he starts coming up, which is... Uh, Again, probably about a 45-minute drive, and as we start going down, uh, we have a resident deputy uh, position that's in between our Ukaipa station and our Big Bear station. That's a, um, a small little mountain community that, uh, you know, the department pays for the house. He lives there, uh, and he's that, that resident deputy for that area. Um, so he obviously hears it come out over the radio, uh, and he stops on a turnout, and he's like, hey, if Thorner comes down here, I'm going to put my spike strips out, and uh, I'll just be ready for him. And spike strips are? Yeah, it's, uh, it's I guess, like a, an accordion uh, t type of device that you can uh, 
you know, folds up a nice little box and you can extend it across the roadway uh, for any vehicle pursuits or anything like that or like this door and thing. And it's, it's got the, the little hollow nails in it and it'll puncture a tire and break off and let the air uh, exit through those hollow nails uh, fairly quick. And so it gradually goes flat. So it's not like a huge blowout, but it makes the tires go flat and it slows down. And But even, even there are some rocket scientists out there that even after you flatten all their tires, they still drive. Yeah, absolutely. So the deputy's getting his spike strips out, and as he's doing that at the back of his uh, uh, patrol Tahoe, he uh, sees Dorner uh, drive by him on Highway 38. So the deputy uh, gets back in his car. Um, as he's pulling out of the turnout, gets stuck behind a large uh, tour bus that was coming from the ski resort. Uh, he ends up passing the tour bus, uh, continuing down Highway 38, and he he goes thinks to himself, he goes, I should have caught up to him by now. He must have uh, uh, turned off um, on uh, ended up being Glass Road, which is the only uh, small little uh, road that you can turn off in uh, Glass Road. I'm surprised Dorner didn't take a – did you guys ever find out – did he – was it just too fast? Or I, I thought if Dorner had seen the deputy there, like the way he shot up the other ones, that he would shoot uh, shoot this deputy's vehicle up. Yeah, it was probably – it would have been too fast because with those mountain roads and those turnouts come pretty quick, especially if you're going pretty fast and you don't – he would already – by the time he realized it, he would already been past him, so – probably would have been at a huge disadvantage if he would have stopped from there. Um, so he continued down, uh, down the highway and ended up turning on uh, glass road. So the deputy backtracks uh, and almost immediately after uh, making that turn onto glass road, he finds um, the Nissan rogue is crashed into a snow berm with the uh, driver door open. Well, it's, we've established a few things, right? Dorner doesn't know how to, untie a boat he doesn't know how to start a nissan and now this is the second vehicle he's crashed um but what what do you guys but had the but the deputy called this out right so when he called this out you must start to have a bunch of people now that you've got some confirmed sightings you must have a bunch of people starting towards that area now right yeah so everyone's everyone's heading up there um i guess uh from the valley stations um once the deputy puts out that he had located the the rogue, that's when uh, shortly after that uh, King and I arrived there with him. So you've got all these units responding now, right? So tell us now about what you guys hear, what you find out. You know how many people are rolling now towards this area? Because the the thing about this now is you've got a confirmed sighting, not only by a citizen but by a law enforcement officer, by a deputy. So what happens from this point forward? Yeah, so I think they had. I mean, every, once it gets out. They had a lot of, I mean, I know all from our department were, were coming up there. And then you had a lot of other outside agencies from the PDs kind of self-deploying and stuff like that, um, which ended up being a problem later on. Um, but when we get there, we meet with um, the resident deputy and uh, detective. Where do you meet with him at? Is that is that at the, the scene where Dorner's crashed his vehicle? Yeah, that's where he locates a Nissan Rogue off of Highway 38 and Glass Road. We meet up with him. How far off the How far off Highway 38 are you guys? Oh, uh, it was it was just a couple hundred yards. He uh, made that turn, lost control, and I think hit that snow berm. Yeah, we meet up with him, the deputy, and then uh, Detective McKay and his partner uh, get there. Um, we set a perimeter up around the car uh, the best we can, um, and then right right when I got there, that's when uh, my brothers call me because I they, I think they heard me on the radio that you know my call sign um, that we were we arrived uh, where we were going at the car. And uh, my brother Ryan called me, and he kind of filled me in that where Dorner was at, at the command post and stuff. Um, I told him, I was like, hey, I, we just got down here. I got to go. And he, he's like, tells me again. He's like, he's like, hey, be careful. Um, you know, he's like, don't do anything stupid. 
I'm like, all right. And then, uh, like, immediately after I talked to him, my brother Matt calls me. And uh, he's like, hey, I'm on my way up there. Um, don't do anything stupid. You know, wait for me. I'm almost there. And I was like. What's the, I'm hearing a common theme here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, you want to ask him, oh, please let me do something stupid, please. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, but Matt, your other brother, was he on SED? He was, yeah. Uh-huh. So they're bringing. So that's the only team that's available for uh, an immediate response, right? Everybody else has been redeployed back to their uh, regular duty. Yeah. So he was he was in the valley. Yeah, but everyone everyone's coming to this one right now. Yeah. So they're all the the whole like division is on their way. So this deputy, you were saying because I I asked you earlier, and I just want to clarify too with folks. I mean, even though you got a lot of stuff going on, my first concern was because I didn't know what it looked like when the deputy showed up after Dorner crashed that vehicle. My concern is why approach that vehicle, but what you were saying is the way he crashed, that door was open. It looked like he had, uh, had fled the vehicle, right? So that's why the deputy approached it as opposed to waiting for backup. Yeah, and again, to the where he was at with all the trees and stuff, it w- probably wouldn't make much sense for him to just sit in his car and just wait for that. You know what I mean? It was probably yeah. t- too much going on uh, with that area, and with the door open, it could have been, you know, could have flanked him or something like that, so... All right, so a couple hundred yards off the road, you guys are, you know, you meet up with the deputy. What what actions do you guys take from that point? I think, again, we're just there, uh, set the perimeter position up, and then the deputy got a phone call from a resident uh, in that area and uh, on his cell phone and told him that he was uh, driving um, on Glass Road and Dorner had popped out from behind a tree uh, and stole and pointed his AR at him and, and stole his uh, white um, Dodge pickup and continued downbound glass road. So he's on his third vehicle now. He just crashed the Nissan. Now he's on a white, you said Dodge? Yeah, Dodge pickup truck. All right. So um, you guys, I mean, you guys just hang out. I mean, I'm going to take a wild guess here and say um, you didn't follow your brother's instructions and wait for other people to show up, did you? No, no. As, as soon as he, he's like, hey, we're on our way. I'm almost there. I, I remember I told King, I'm like, hey, we better, you know, go find this guy because SWAT's almost here and like pretty much they're going to handle business so if we want to get anything done like we better you know quit standing here um so as soon as the deputy got that phone call uh we're like hey uh let's let's start going down uh, glass road now we're looking for a white dodge pickup let's go find this guy um he just carjacked somebody at gunpoint um so we continue uh the resident deputy he uh was very familiar with that area there's some cabins down um on glass road that he had searched earlier in the day and the weeks prior um so he's leading us. We go down Glass Road, and then a uh, uh, it was like a, a Zuzu Trooper is coming up at us on Glass Road. And with the snow and stuff, it's uh, it's goes from a you know two lane mountain road to a pretty much a single lane mountain road. So we didn't know if Dorner had carjacked another car or it was Dorner uh, or what. So we kind of do a uh, a felony traffic stop on that where we get out and we call the people out. Um, the driver. This is shades it. of LAPD and the newspaper people all over again, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean this one we could kind of see that. Um, that it wasn't Dorner driving when it was coming up at us and that we, the thought that he was just, you know, we just got the information that he was in a white Dodge truck, but we just wanted to be sure. So we ended up doing a felony traffic stop on that. And it was a, a father and son. Uh, we pulled them out and we start kind of debriefing them. Hey, did you see the pickup truck? Uh, clear the car, make sure Dorner's not hiding in the back or anything like that. Um, so as we're talking to them, uh, uh, two of our SED units arrived there and it's uh it was Danny Rosa and Larry Lopez. And these guys are pretty much one of like one saved my life. And then why I continue to even talk about the story just because they're straight, absolutely 
badass heroes and I would not be here if it, if it wasn't for them. So it's kind of, I don't really, I don't mind talking about it, but I just have no need to talk about this anymore. Um, but to kind of get out there and let people know the caliber of guys that are in this profession and what they do is, uh, it's honestly, it's an honor to, to get in, and share their story about what they did. Which is what Game of Crimes is all about. So so they get there, uh, and uh, Larry was driving the big, uh, the big, like, Dodge or a Chevy box van with the sliding door on it. Each team had one. It holds a lot of the gear and stuff. And, like, they use it, like, kind of do a Trojan horse on search warrants where they all load in there and then drive it to the house. So um, he ends up parking his van there and... Get, grabs his gear and then gets into the front seat of uh, uh, Danny Rosa's pickup truck. And I, I remember when they kind of when they got there, I was a little bummed out. I was like, God dang it! I'm like, they're gonna go down there and you know have all the fun and stuff, and <laughs> we're gonna be stuck out of perimeter position or some something like that. Uh, so I remember I was standing in the road, and then um, we get information from dispatch that there was two fish and game officers on Glass Road. We didn't know they were down there, and. Uh, I don't even know if they had the information about Dorner stealing the pickup truck just with radio communications. Um, I don't know if they were on our channel or not, but Dorner uh, passed by them in the white Dodge pickup truck. And as he passed them, uh, put his uh, AR out the window and just kind of lit their vehicles up as he drove by, uh, shot the windows out, um, you know, doors, all that stuff. Uh, luckily, the uh, fish and game guys were able to duck and, and none of them were, uh, were hit with any rounds. Um, so Boy, this guy's just, he, he just continually poking the bear at any opportunity he gets, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that information came out, and then uh, um, I remember I standing in the middle of the road, and, and uh, Danny stuck his head out the window, and he goes, "Get the fuck out of my way!" So I kind of stepped back off the road, and he just did a, you know, burnout and took off. So I told King, "I'm like, hey, let's get in the car, let's go with him." Um, you know, there's just two of them down there. This guy just shot two fish a game guys, so obviously we're gonna go as well. Um, so we start going down and the, and the resident deputies in front of us and we kind of get to a fork in the road and he pulls over and he goes, Hey, I, I couldn't keep up, uh, with Danny. Uh, he was driving too fast. I don't, I don't know where he went. Um, but we ended up, uh, I think we ended up veering to the left, but later to find out that road, it kind of reconnects and just kind of a little offshoot, little crazy mountain road. Um, so we continue to go downbound, uh, glass road. And, uh, we come across two, uh, old cabins. So we, there's a main cabin and then there's like a, a little outbuilding. So we, as we pass it, um, there's a bunch of foot tracks since, you know, the deputies and stuff had searched those cabins earlier in the week. And I think earlier in that morning, and there's a set of tire tracks that pull up directly next to the cabin. And as we, um, pass it, it kind of looked like someone pulled in there and then maybe reversed and went back on the highway. So we pass the, the cabins, and then the resident deputy stops again. We pull up next to him. Now I'm kind of, like, getting a little frustrated. I'm like, hey, man, like, what do you keep stopping for? And he's like, hey, there's something weird with that cabin. Those tire tracks weren't there earlier. I think we should we could should check it out. I'm not really thinking that it was Dorner just because uh, our, our uh, aviation helicopter was up above us, um, and I assume that they would have said something uh, if they saw this white Dodge that we were looking for. And then uh, – I'm like, okay, well, let's just clear this real quick. He was pretty adamant about uh, those tire tracks being weird. And I was like, all right, cool, we'll clear it real quick uh, and then get back on the road and then link back up with our uh, our SVD unit. Now, where was the white Dodge, though? I mean, you probably don't know at the time, but where'd you find out later? 
Yeah, we didn't know at the time, but what Dorner had actually done, he actually drove uh, through the property between the uh, cabin and uh, outbuilding, and then there was a big uh, like pine tree. So there was a, um, there was there the snow kind of stopped underneath this pine tree, and then so he drove through there. And that's when the tire track stopped. So he drove all the way through the property into the back, and then uh, crashed that white Dodge down a uh, an embankment, uh, a small little ravine, and he. Uh, got out of the Dodge and then actually kicked the back door to that uh, main cabin and was sitting right in there in the living room. At the time that you guys are at, how many people do you have on the ground out there? Obviously, it sounds like there's an air unit, but how many folks do you have on the ground for this confrontation? Uh, with us, it was it was me and King, the resident deputy, uh, McKay and his partner, and I think maybe one other deputy uh, that was there. What's, I mean, let's, before we get into the the shooting and everything, right now, what are you guys thinking? You, you know he's got to be there. You know he's, or do you think that he's there? Let me ask you this. Do you think he's there? Do you think he's close? Or are you thinking, um, false alarm, he's farther down the road? I, I'm, I, I, I'm not really thinking he's there, but we're still going to, with everything that was going on, uh, we're still going to, you know, be cautious uh, with what we're doing. So how do you be cautious with the guy who's just shooting everything up in sight? You know, how, how do you guys, so how do you guys start approaching this? How are you guys going to, what's, what's your plan to clear these houses? So we're going to, I was going to go up and I was going to look at those tire tracks um, and just see if they went or where they went and get a better look at it. Um, and again, we parked down, down from the cabin, so he didn't have any a view of us. So as we're walking up to the cabin, um, a silver Dodge Durango pulls up. And it's uh, two narcotics officers. It's a, a sergeant from the Redlands Police Department and a deputy from my department, the Sheriff's Department. Um, on, they run a, a joint uh, team. So they pull up and they stop in the middle of the road, like directly in front of the cabin. Um, when we were walking up, it was uh, myself, King, and then uh, McKay was behind King. So King and McKay kind of break off from me to go talk to the two narc guys at the uh, front bumper of the Dodge Durango and tell them what we're doing. The uh, King tells them that um, the SVD units had uh, uh, taken off down the road, continued, and we're going to check this cabin uh, and mention something about the tire tracks. As I continue, uh, I don't stop with them. I continue to walk uh, along the roadway, just kind of looking down at the footprints, and then as I'm getting closer to the tire tracks. As I get closer to the tire tracks, that's when uh, I break that first plane of the, um, the living room window where Dorner was. He was offset. Uh, you know, backed up from the window a little bit in the living room. And as soon as I break that, uh, that, you know, that plane in the window, he uh, starts shooting at me. Was he waiting for you or did he see you approaching you think, or did he just happen to spot you when you broke the plane? You know, I, th I think he saw the car, but I don't think he had a view from where the guys were at the front bumper. I think he might've had a, from where he was at was just maybe a view from, uh, you know, the, the rear quarter panel of that car. And then once I got closer to that window and saw that I was walking towards the cabin. So w walk us through. So he sees you, you see him, right? No, I, no, I don't see him. You never at all. saw him? No, he's inside the cabin just offset. And there was a, I think one window had like a, it was, had curtains over it. And I think he might've picked up like a mattress or something like that and put it over the other window of the cabin. So yeah, I couldn't see him at all. Um, so I'm kind of walking, looking down at the tracks, and then he starts doing that first uh, volley of fire, and he had, had a suppressed uh, suppressor on his AR as well. Um, he was accurate. First round hit me right in my face, uh, went in next to my left nostril, uh, went through the roof of my mouth, through my tongue, knocked my front teeth out, uh, 
and then it continued, uh, blew out the right side of my jaw, uh, just right in my jawline, and then the bullet continued and uh, it ended up stopping right in the shoulder strap of my uh, my tack vest. Like you said, did you did you feel it and then hear the sound, or describe for folks, you know, when did it register with you that there was something wrong? Was it the feeling? Was it the sound? Or when did, and then when did you realize you've actually been shot? It, it was, uh, it was like getting punched, punched in the head. Uh, you know, you see the flash, feel it. Um, the pain wasn't anything bad, but I got hit all kind of at once in that first volley. So it was, you know, rapid fire. Um, I got hit in the face. I got hit in the, uh, the left forearm, shot the rifle out of my hand. And then I got hit in the, uh, in the chest right under my left pec kind of all, all at once. Did the body armor take any, uh, absorb or stop any of that at all? So it, it hit a corner piece of the, uh, the body armor. Um, but yeah, it was kind of right on the, uh, the, uh, the stitching of that, of that vest. So just, it, it just barely nicked, uh, the soft body armor. So if you'd had, if you'd had the plates in, it still would have helped, right? I don't think it would have, no, just because those plates are so narrow right down there. Um, it probably would have. Yeah, you got to be directly on on most of those shots, right? The ones from the side, the ones under the arms, those are the ones that end up being dangerous. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of bladed at the time, um, kind of with, you know, um, looking down with, uh, from the window where he was shooting at. And, you know, we know what it means. So when you say bladed twos, just give, give folks an idea of the way, where were you in position to the uh, angle of fire coming from Dorner? Yeah, so just kind of my my whole left side was exposed uh, at that point. Um, kind and of that's my... why the first shot comes in through the left nostril. You're getting everything from the left side. Yeah. Now you got hit in the left. Are you right handed or left handed? Right handed. Right. So, but you, so you would have had uh, the, the 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 rifle. You said was in your right hand then, holding that right. I had it. Uh, I, I I was holding it. Uh, yeah, I had it up. Not not up. Just kind of pointed uh, down at the ground, but with my left um, my hand on the. Uh, you know, the stock. So your, your left hand's out front in the receiver, right? So your right hand's on down by the, the grip and you're kind of holding it that way. And you get shot in the, in the left arm or the right arm? The left arm. What ha And then where else did you get shot? Yeah. So I got the face, the chest, the left forearm. And then I, uh, as, once I kind of realized everything that was going on, like, oh fuck, I'm getting shot. I, uh, turned to take cover behind the, uh, the Dodge Durango that was parked in the street. And, uh, as I turned to take cover, I got shot right in, uh, my left knee and it kind of just went through you know those rifle rounds they just kind of they go in small and then they just kind of explode on their way out so it just kind of blew like my entire like tibia plateau out of everything like the knee joint kind of sits on from dorner to you how far away is are you guys uh it was it wasn't too far at all it's probably maybe like 35 yards wow so so he could see you and the reason you couldn't see him obviously if you're 35 yards away you know we're talking 90 you know to 100 feet Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're, you're not able to see in the house, but he's obviously able to see out. But does he um, does he shoot th directly through the window or has he got an open window or, or do you know how the, f the first shots came out? Yeah, I think he's shooting directly through the window. OK, um, so I take cover behind the rear quarter panel of the uh, Dodge Durango and Dorner continues to uh, to fire at me behind the car. Um, Who else is with you? At, where's everybody else at this time? You're getting shot. Where's everybody else? Yeah. So King realized that uh, he didn't know I got shot at that time. He just hears it because it's a suppressor. Um, he's kind of looking around. He's like, what the hell is that? And then he sees the windows start popping on the Durango. And he's like, oh, shit, we're getting shot at. So he runs back to where he initially parked, uh, takes cover, and starts returning fire um, into the main cabin. I think he shot the outbuilding and a couple trees uh, from where he was at, just kind of doing cover fire. What's uh, he armed with, too? Has he also got a rifle? Yeah, he does, yeah. What, what kind of rifle are you guys uh, armed with? 
So patrol, they have uh, the uh, Mini 14s, and then our SUD team has the uh, the full auto M4s. Mini 14, a Mini 14 is a Ruger. Mini 14, what caliber? Is that a 30? Uh, 223. So I take cover behind the recorder panel glass. I thought I went back there and kind of ate shit, um, but um, McKay and the two narcotics officers took cover behind the uh, the front tire, behind the engine block, and then I ran around um, to take cover behind the uh, uh, rear driver's side um, as well. And you said Dorner's still shooting at you, right? Yeah, he's still shooting at me. So I go down and uh, I uh, what I one of the narcotics guys says I ran behind the car, put my back against the uh, rear quarter panel where the tires, and then kind of slid down to my butt. How were you able to walk at this point if he just shot you through your your knee? I have no idea. That's just adrenaline. Yeah, and the only only place I knew I was really hit, I knew I was hitting the face, and I knew I was hitting the chest at that point. Um, just because I I was I went back there and he's still shooting at me, so I got. I'm, Got that going on, um, and I start choking on all my all this blood. All my teeth got knocked out. My tongue is shot in half, um, and all this blood is like building up in my throat. And I can't, I can't. I got a kind of a hole in my neck, and I I can't breathe at all. Um, so I have to lean forward, and I kind of start letting all this, you know, teeth and bone and all this other crap kind of get out of my mouth. And I and I keep telling myself I'm like, don't fucking panic, um, just breathe. So I kind of went down there, found a position where I could uh, get some oxygen in, and then uh, Dorner again kept shooting at me. Uh, the rear quarter panel uh, glass, the whole uh, tip piece, it came out in like one piece, and it landed right in my lap. Um, so I got that, and I kind of threw that off me, and I kind of leaned to my right. Uh, he shot the tire. The tire was hissing air, um, and then he started skipping rounds into the car, and then one of the rounds... Uh, uh, skipped and it hit me in my right hand. So I kind of went back up a little bit and tucked my elbows in a little bit tighter um, from him. Now, when you say he's skipping shots at you, can you explain for the, the listeners what you're talking about there? Yeah. So I have cover behind like the rear tire uh, of the vehicle and then uh, the, all that exposed area underneath the vehicle. Um, he's just kind of shooting, uh, was shooting rounds um, from underneath the vehicle. Yeah. Cause when bullets don't bounce and, you know, come up at the same angle of attack, they come in, they, they hit and they kind of flatten out. So if you can shoot like down towards the ground, they'll flatten out and stay at a low trajectory, you know, and uh, skip kind of through there. So um, you've been shot now through the face, um, through the uh, arm, through the pack, through the knee. And now you've taken another shot to your hand. So you, you've, you've taken five rounds so far. Is that right? Yeah, so I, the one, yeah, the one in the chest, um, I, that's, I mean, I knew I, he was shooting a rifle around. I had soft body armor in. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to die. Like I, my chest was on fire. Um, and I, and then, uh, I was like, I immediately start thinking of my wife with this brand new baby that I left her with, who's two weeks old. Um, I start thinking about my brothers, you know, I'm like, God dang, I, I felt like I let them down. Um, I think when we talked during the pre-call uh, uh, pre yesterday, um, I mentioned a little bit, you know, I always wanted to be like them. I always looked up to them. Uh, I always wanted to make them proud. And then especially on, you know, the department, uh, they had a really good reputation. And I, and that was kind of one of my main driving forces was just, you know, to one, to be like them and, and you know, to keep, uh, you know, the family name good and not, not do anything stupid uh, to embarrass, you know, myself or them. Um, so I felt like I, I fucked up and uh, I let him down a little bit. But you also took a shot that th one shot through your chest um, also hit your iPhone, right? Yeah. So I was back there and I'm like, I got to call my wife. I, I 
you know, what a well, piece of how shit. How the hell are you going to call your wife? You've been shot through the face, half your jaws missing. I mean, did you really think you, were you able to talk at that point? So no, I reached in and, uh, like I said, I had that, that saber jacket and I had my phone right in the chest pocket underneath my vest. So I was like, I got to call my wife and tell her I'm sorry, um, for doing this to her. Um, so I go reach in under my vest and I unzip the pocket and I pull the phone out and the phone is like exploded. So the round actually like it went through the, you know, nicked the body armor, um, hit my phone, but it slowed the bullet down enough, uh, that it didn't penetrate my chest cavity. It just gave me a nice, uh, cool scar. So that phone actually <laughs> saved my life. Yeah. A cool scar. Yeah. I mean, you got to laugh at that. I, mean, I this didn't is know a... there were cool scars. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I, I heard the story yesterday and I am, I am so zoned in on this and I just looked at myself and I've got this frown and I'm, my heart's bleeding for you, and you're talking about a cool scar because it hit you down. Well, that's Forrest Gump had a cool scar, too, and he showed it to the president of the United States. Oh, in the movie, so. uh, Good thing you weren't shot in the buttocks and you were showing us your cool scar. So, um, uh, Well, then it's just, just cop humor. I mean, this is just this is the way you deal with life. Holy cow. When does the first call for help goes out? Who makes that call? So I think from I – don't, I don't know who put the first one out. Um, so the resident deputy was there. I just know off a of, – uh, Jeremy King or uh, Detective King's belt recording that the uh, resident deputy is calling out officer down. Uh, he's putting out the location that we're out. And then uh, um, McKay and the two narcotics officers are behind the engine block. And then McKay starts um, putting information out that uh, Dorner is shooting at us from uh, inside the cabin directly in, in like north of uh, the vehicle that we're behind. So something we should, we should bring back in cause it's going to make a difference here in a little bit. We've, we talked about this yesterday, but when you guys also started planning this, there's also a couple things you did to pre-stage uh, some resources and assets, and that included a medical helicopter, that included you know one of your other tactical units, the helicopters, and uh, you had an ER doc too that was aboard that medical flight, right? Yeah, we did. Um, so we have a, our medic ship. So they once the call came out, the Dorner was spotted in Big Bear. They took off from our our hangar, um, which is in near our headquarters, and they actually flew to. Uh, the Big Bear Airport and landed and were staging at the Big Bear Airport. And then on it was, uh, his name's Dr. Gerges. He's a full-time uh, ER doctor and he volunteers his time a couple days a month and uh, flies out with our, our medic ship. So, and he's a, he's a reserve deputy um, with the department. That's so cool. You guys actually had then, I mean, that was part of the planning too. I mean, that's, that's just part of good SOP is that, um, you're going to do something like this. They've already known Dorner's going to shoot people. He's already killed people. So you need to make sure you got medic ship out there. You got to have some, you know, some additional help. What other resources was that? Was that the only airborne resources you guys had coming in at that point? Yeah, we had that, and then we had our, our obviously our patrol helicopter, which was up above us at the time as well. How long did it? Well, and this is for later though too, because you obviously um, didn't know about it at the time. How long was it before all the news people started coming out? Because they've got to be monitoring, they've got to be listening too, right? So when these other aircrafts take off, the other complication always is it's the news. Yeah, so uh, I, did, I didn't know at the time, but yeah, so the news helicopters get there. Um, some reporter heard it come out over the scanner or something, and he actually drove down there and captured some of it on video. Um, so yeah, they started going down there as well. So you're you're behind the vehicle. You've already taken five rounds. Um, what's going on? at the, Who... Kind of let us know now what, as this progresses, where's everybody at? Uh, you got folks returning fire. So now just play out the rest of the scenario for us. 
So the two narcotics officers, McCare behind the engine block, King and the uh, the other two deputies are um, are back where we initially parked, and King's returning some fire. Our SPD uh, unit obviously heard out that we uh, officer down, so they turn around because they'd passed the cab, and they turn around and start backtracking to where we're initially at. Um, McKay uh, goes up from the hood and starts returning fire uh, into the cabin at the into the window. He goes back down, um, and when he pops up to return fire a second time up over the hood, uh, Dorner's kind of obviously has his rifle already set on that area of the vehicle and immediately uh, shoots McKay as he uh, breaks the plane of the hood of that uh, Durango. Well, yeah, shit's hitting the fan at this point, so adrenaline's going, and you've got limited areas um, to move. He pops up, and like you say, Dorner shoots right in the area where he's popping up. Did you know, did you see what was going on at that time? Were you still uh, lucid enough to know what was happening? Uh, no, I didn't know um, McKay had got shot. I, like I said, I was, uh, again, just trying to, pretty much just struggling to breathe um, with that. Um, I did it, like I said, I pulled my phone out and that was exploded. And then I kind of, um, I had to put my head on like my right, uh, my right arm just to get in a position, um, where you can breathe. Yeah. And then at once that was going on, then now, then I kind of realized I was, I was shot in the leg. Um, I let every breath that I did take, it felt like bone was like kind of grinding together in my leg. Um, any movement I took, uh, was just kind of excruciating pain in, in that leg. And then that's when I realized too, I was, uh, I was shot in the arm. Um, I looked down at my hand and, uh, it, there, it looked like a, like a bunch of crab meat was hanging out of my, my jacket sleeve, but it was just uh, all the tendons and stuff like that that were hanging out from my forearm. Cause it was, it was a huge chunk of like bone and skin. It was almost like a baseball size hole that was in, uh, in my left forearm. And I, and we know what you're really ticked off about at this point, that you screwed up that brand new jacket, that five eleven, didn't you? Yeah. And then my brand new gun too. So I, that I don't know. I must have pulled it out or something um, at one point because it it was uh, laying on the uh, asphalt. This was later on, and then uh, you know we have all our armor drive in and our tack tractor and stuff, and that gun got ran over like eight times. So. <laughs> all scratched up. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, yeah. it just goes from bad to worse, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so let's go back. But Detective McKay, he takes around him, but that's that's a fatal round, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, it's, you know, uh, from what I was told, it kind of hit him in the collarbone and then shot diagonal across his body. And uh, he goes down and he was shot several more times um, from underneath uh, the vehicle. When Dorner was skipping the rounds where he laid down, he was able to skip those rounds into him. Yep. What, because um, this is going on, so just walk us from there, you know, because some of this you remember and some of this, you know, because of after the fact, right? What's the last thing you remember for sure at the scene that you remember um, happening? So I was behind the vehicle and just tons of rounds were going off at this point. And I don't know, I don't know if it was from Dorner or, you know, my partner's returning fire. It was just hundreds of rounds being fired. Um, and then I, I look back and I see the tires of the Dodge Durango kind of rolling right next to my head. And then now I'm completely exposed uh, to the cabin. My cover is gone. And I look to my left and McKay is uh, a couple inches from my face, just kind of laying there. 
Now, you don't know at this point whether he's alive or, or dead, right? No, I don't. So what, what happened to make that vehicle move? So from what I've been told, the plan was um, the sergeant from Redlands PD was told the deputy to uh, throw the get in the driver's seat or put the seat back and put the vehicle in neutral and to roll it out. And he was going to uh, drag me and McKay behind the vehicle and use it as cover. So the deputy does that. He gets in the car, puts it neutral, rolls the vehicle out. And then once we pass the cabin and get back to where all our vehicles were parked um, out of Dorner's view, uh, he gets out and he sees me and McKay laying where we were and out in the middle of the street now. Um, and I guess that sergeant said that uh, McKay was dead and I was too heavy to, to cover or to drag. Unbelievable. You told us this yesterday, and I'll tell you, I, the more I thought about it, the angrier I got uh, about this um, for a couple reasons. Number one, dude, it just whether it's law enforcement, military, whatever, you don't leave anybody behind. If you say you're going to do something, you're going to drag them out of there. You drag their ass out of there. You grab them. You do whatever it takes, mm -hmm. you know, to, to get that stuff done. And then, but to use the excuse is that, well, he, how do you know? I mean, if I had looked at you, I would have thought you're dead. I mean, how many times has somebody looked like they're dead, but they're not? And it's like, you're, you're not a fucking doctor. You don't get to make that decision out in the field. You, tr you get everybody back so that they got a chance of surviving. Um, That's Joe Pirasante, last week's guest, got shot in the head by the Taliban through the temple, through his helmet, through the temple, out the other side. His guys drug him on the helicopter because that's what you do. You don't leave a man behind. And a man puts his hand on his chest to pray for him and feels him breathing. He's still alive today because of that. And because of that one nurse, they also had a thing, too, where if you pushed him across the line, you had to work on him. Nobody wanted to do it because they didn't think Pierre would survive. That nurse pushed him across the line at that Ford operating base um, um, hospital. The thing that pisses me, and let me tell you why, the thing that pisses me off about this, and I'm jumping forward a little bit, it sounds strange because Murph and I are both cops. You're a cop. I mean, we love this job. We love this shit. But to leave somebody out there like that and then to fucking get a medal for doing what you just did, which is exposing, taking away not just concealment, but your cover, the thing that was protecting you from taking more rounds. I tell you what really pissed me off, I got to tell you, Alex, is when you sent me the PDF and I see the pictures from the helicopter that they took of the ground and you and McKay are laying out there with no fucking cover. Yeah. And somebody gets a fucking medal for this. Uh, you know, I, I tried to hold on to my rage about this, but the, this is... Guys, uh, just um, it, no. It's okay. It's okay because this, you're exactly right. This guy was awarded for doing something he didn't do. Yeah, you know. And Alex, we're not asking you to comment on it because you, you know, you're you got to work out, out there. there. We don't. A, we don't have to live out there, work out there, and we get to call it out when we see bullshit like this. It's one thing if they put their ass on the lines. But to fucking run away and leave you guys exposed out there, and to ensure is that McKay took more rounds or you took more rounds, fucking unconscionable. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he should have had the balls to stand up afterwards and say, I don't want this award. I didn't earn it. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I wasn't going to use the C word, but cowardice Chicken? is the first thing that came to my mind. It's like, you fucking didn't go out there because you were a coward and you used the excuse, well, McKay was dead and you were too heavy. I'm sorry. How much did you fucking weigh at that point, Alex? Yeah, I was, I was a big runner. I was, I, I was pretty slim. So I was like 165 pounds. I'm telling you, when when adrenaline pumps, I could have I could have grabbed you with one hands and thrown I could I could have tossed you 20 feet. 
with all that adrenaline going just to get you out of there. Yeah. Yeah, it's you know, and and again, we're we're being Monday morning quarterbacks, but damn, I mean, that's that's just unacceptable. That's unacceptable. not at this point. This ain't Monday morning quarterback. And Steve, I mean, take a look at that PDF file. Take a look at the pictures of him laying out in the middle of no fucking where with yeah. no fucking cover. And I haven't I used him. the f word this much in such a short time since I was on Christopher Lockhead's podcast. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, and and you can see that you know they moved McKay. Like there's a big puddle of blood in those photos too, so the vehicle didn't run him over or anything. And um, yeah, and and especially I have an audio clip too of a, the belt recording, and it, it just how many rounds that you can hear going off, and and what that feeling was like. Um, I remember I was laying there, and I I see them all crouched down behind the car now. And I'm yelling at them to come get me. I don't know if they could understand me because I didn't really have a tongue or anything. But um, I'm, I, you know, my rifle's laying in the middle of the street. I'm asking them to throw me a gun to come get me. And I just remember them telling me not to move, don't move. Um, and that's when uh, uh, Danny Rosa and Larry Lopez get there. And then they immediately start laying full auto cover fire into the cabin, which probably, you know, saved us from getting shot additional times being out there in the middle of the open kind of probably pushed Dorner back um, further into the cabin and not right out that window. And who eventually dragged your ass to safety? Was it Rosa? Yeah. So, uh, so uh, additional uh, SUD guys start getting there. Um, and which is uh, Justin Musella, uh, my brother, Matt, and then his Sergeant, Sergeant John Charbonneau, they get there and uh, Musella, former army ranger immediately sees what's going on. Sees we're in the middle of the road and, um, my brother Matt did not know it was me. He saw us laying down there, but he didn't. He didn't think it was me because uh, he knew we were wearing suits all week weekend, and he could tell that the officers that were down on the road uh, were not wearing suits. So they immediately start laying cover fire into the cabin as well. Uh, Musella tells uh, Charbonneau. He says immediately gets out. Says love you fucker and took took off running about 50 yards in the middle of the open to the adjacent outbuilding of that cabin. Uh, he communicates with. Uh, Danny Rose and Larry Lopez were on the other side um, where we initially parked. He goes, hey, I'm going to pop smoke. Uh, you know, you guys uh, get your officer rescue, plan together, and get them out. So Musella ran out in the middle of the open uh, through two canisters of smoke. Uh, Was that near- to provide cover or concealment at least so that it would it would obscure uh Dorner's vision? Yeah, so he yeah, Dorner wouldn't see uh, Danny and Larry running out there to grab us. So the smoke was uh, perfect. Landed, um, uh, provided some concealment. Uh, so Larry ran out first from behind uh, the vehicle, uh, grabbed McKay and drug him back while Danny laid down uh, cover fire into the cabin. And he gets back and he goes, okay, your turn. Um, Danny ran out, grabbed me and drug me back while, uh, while Larry uh, laid down cover fire into the cabin. And like I said, if those guys weren't there, uh, I would have bled out and died out in the middle of that, middle of that roadway. You would have bled out and died because the two motherfuckers who had the chance to pull you out of harm's way didn't do it in the first place. And so now we got to expose more officers to this. This is this is something I got to stop here because otherwise I will go off the ledge on this. And I don't mean I'm not doing this for drama. I'm not doing this. But I'm telling you, man, I thought about this last night and I thought, how was I going to handle this? I, I'd like to think things through. And I usually like to think I'm going to, you know, kind of keep an even keel on stuff. But man, I got to tell you, uh, you know, I just, I cannot um, uh, just, I'm going to leave it at that. That's if, if I go any farther with this, it won't be healthy. Yeah. And you kind of live on the edge anyway. You're about to fall over every day. Fucking so A, man. I don't want to <laughs> see you go. 
<laughs> I am one paycheck away from the dark side. So, so you get back to the cars now. They got you. So they got you in a safe position, or at least uh, a position with cover, right? Yeah. So, and that's when um, when Danny Rosick dragged me back behind the car. He was dragging me so fast. Once he got behind cover, he kind of fell backwards, and I'm like, oh, I'm looking up, and I'm like, fuck, did he just fucking get shot? You know, saving me, but uh, he ended up tripping and and uh, getting back up. Um, so yeah, they brought us back behind the uh, cover, and they. Uh, they got us back there. Um, one of our medics, our SWAT medics, was trying to make his way around, like uh, through the, you know, take the long way around the cabin to get to us, uh, to provide us some, uh, uh, you know, some first aid. First aid on that. <clears throat> so uh, they end up. Um, I saw King, and uh, he. That's when I was like, man, my face must be pretty jacked up because it, it. The look he gave me was like he was gonna like pass out but it was just how are you still loose i'm sorry how are you still conscious and lucid at this point to remember this stuff yeah i was i i I was like again like it was like obviously i probably had you know getting shot in the head with a 223 you know i was a little out of it and you know we're out there for a long time um you know how cold was it out there it was was it was like below freezing was it pretty cold yeah it was it was probably in the 30s a bunch of snow on the road um so they got us, uh, they put me in the back of, uh, Danny Rose's pickup truck. And, uh, you know, I had my, uh, my leg stretched out across the bench seat and I was kind of hugging the back headrest, uh, with my right arm. Um, just so I could, cause every time I kind of went on my back and stuff, again, the blood would pull up in my throat and I'd start suffocating uh, on that. So I got in a position where I could put my head down and kind of let the blood just drain out of my mouth. And then that's, uh, Danny Rosa's, a, a Marine. He's on our honor guard, and he was just getting ready to um, do his honor guard duties at Officer Crane's uh, funeral in Riverside, and he had his uh, his nice you know ceremony boots on the uh, bench seat of his truck. And I looked down, and all this blood and stuff is just you know filling up the bottom of these boots. And then uh, I just remember, I'm like, whoever's boots these are are going to be so pissed when they get in here because this the boots. You're are- sitting here, been shot five times, and all you're fucking concerned about is I think I'm ruining somebody's pretty boots. I just, I'm like, man, this is kind of fucked up. Yeah, my all this shit's going right <laughs> into this guy's boots. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I remember another uh, uh, two um, that we talked a little bit about yesterday. I, you know, we we look up to these guys and want to have this reputation. And and, and again, it wasn't that I thought I was going to die. It was like, all right, I know that I'm dying. Like I'm dead. Um, especially with that round in my chest and then how much blood was coming out of my mouth. Like, um, it, there was no other thought. I'm like, okay, just pretty much fucking waiting to die at this point. Um, when, when did that point happen? How far into this incident do you think? I mean, cause at first you're like shot, you're just still reacting and stuff. When did it, was it when you were laying out there all alone? You know, what point did that thought start creeping into your mind? Is that now this is it. I've bought, I bought it. Uh, it was almost like, it was pretty quick. Just, just about my chest, you know, getting shot in the chest with that rifle. It was just all this, cause we had, it was five days of like scenarios that were running through our head that we were talking about, um, and stuff. So it, it, it was pretty quick. And then with the chest thing, I'm like, God damn it. Like, this is not one of the scenarios I fucking had <laughs> that I played out. You know, me dying in the middle of some shit mountain road is not what I thought about, um, so it was like, God damn it. I got a couple seconds before I fucking die. Just taking a rifle around to the chest. Um, and then I was still there. I was still breathing. Then it went back to, okay, don't panic. 
fucking breathe. Just kind of like when you stub your toe, when you're like, oh, okay, this, that fucking hurts. Or like, all right, think about something else. And it went back and forth. I mean, I think we we're out there for close to 30, 40 minutes by the time I got shot till we made it uh, onto the helicopter. So we're, it was, it was some time that we we're out there. What, what, what it's goes through, time. what goes through your mind when, when you're, I mean, I know you're saying that you're thinking you're going to die, but what goes through your mind? Are you thinking about, I mean, I, I mean, you got a wife, you got a brand new son, you, you know, family and stuff. What are you thinking about while this is happening? I, I, I was thinking that I, I let everybody down, um, that I fucked up, that I, that's just kind of what I felt, um, that it wasn't, you know, I wasn't, wasn't supposed to happen like this. Um, and then, uh, I remember when uh, my leg was killing me at that point. And then, uh, I remember I'm like, don't fucking say anything. Just shut your mouth. It'd f- fucking die like a man. Cause the last thing these guys are going to remember you back here fucking complaining about how bad your legs hurt. So it was just, it was just that mental, that mental battle. Um, the only thing I can like kind of compare it to is like when you're running like if you do any like long distance running and all you want to fucking do is stop and take a breather and then you mentally force yourself to continue running it's Um, called hitting the wall i mean you just hit that wall and you just got to power through the wall yep so yeah they load us in the back of uh danny rose's truck and then i see them they're picking up mckay and i'm trying to tell them like like don't put them on my leg because i kind of have it stretched out uh on the bench seat and i don't know if they're uh um, they knew I was shot in the leg or not. Um, uh, but as they do, they pick them up and kind of throw them in the car right on top of me. And then it was like, now I'm like, Oh my God, like I just want to freaking pass out or die at this point. Like this fucking hurts. Um, Oh, one thing I, I kind of touched over when I, when I passed uh King, um, that he gave me that, you know, that look on his face. Um, but I, I gave him a thumbs up and tried to tell him that I was going to be okay when they were dragging me out, man. Uh, the fact that 30 minutes into this with the with the trauma you have and the rounds you're taking that you're still able to think and communicate and just even if it's a thumbs up and do stuff like that where did, where did it come from uh what's that when like be- yeah i mean where where did this i mean i know that you said you thought you were going to die but it sounds like but you you sounded more pissed about it it's like like yeah, if I die, I'm not gonna just even with what you said. You said die. I'm not gonna go out like a wuss. I'm not gonna complain about my leg. I don't want them thinking that. Where does this mindset come from? Yeah, you're offering encouragement to another guy that's been shot, yeah. and here you are thinking you're gonna die. Yeah, I I just I, it was just that look in his face and how close we are, and you know, um, I just kind of wanted to let him know that it, I was gonna be okay, and I know he still had a job to do, and not to worry about me. That's called the warrior mentality, the warrior mindset. Well, the thing is, too, you never know when you're going to have to use it. And here you guys are up in Big Bear. Nothing goes on in Big Bear, you know, just stuff. And now you've got the incident of all incidents Yeah, happening. Um, so they put you into the pickup truck. Who's driving now? Is it Rosa or is it Lopez? No, Danny, Rosa, and Larry Lopez, they stayed there uh, to engage with Dorner. And the two narcotics officers got into the uh, pickup truck and drove us out. And who are, and these, who are these two narcotic officers with? Uh, it was a deputy with uh, the sheriff's department and then a sergeant with the Redlands Police Department. The same ones that left you high and dry out there now get to drive you out. Yeah, so they drove us out. Um, our medic ship took up – once they called the officer down, they took off from the airport and were hovering. And uh, they had to find a landing zone now in the middle of the forest where they could uh, get us out. 
that's got to be some balls of steel too, because you're landing now. You don't know what's underneath that snow. You don't know what the ground is like. You know, you've got trees and everything. I mean, oh, those guys are badass. And then the dock on that ship, Doctor Curtis, probably one of the coolest guys I've ever met. It wouldn't rather have anybody else, you know, on that helicopter that day. So walk us through that. So they're driving you there. What's um, you drive from there? Um, you've got McKay with you, you know, in the back of the vehicle. Um, are you hearing anything? Are you hearing any radio traffic as you're headed out to the helicopter or is it, is it pretty much over for you at this point? Yeah, there, uh, I just remember I was back there and McKay's on top of me and then, uh, uh, they hit some dirt road and then the truck almost got stuck and, you know, I can feel the tires spinning. I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ, this is a shitty day. Um, so they finally get us to the landing, landing zone. Um, they pull McKay. How long of a trip was that, if you remember, or if you were told later? I, I don't remember. I don't think it was very far um, from where we were at. So they get us, uh, they get McKay out of the car, and then they get me out, and then uh, they end up putting me on my back in the, the whatever the medic back uh, basket thing is that they have on those helicopters. So they put me on my back, and all the blood starts pulling up in my throat again. Um, so the doc has to, uh, he flips me over. He kind of realized what was going on. He flips me over on my stomach. Uh, so the blood can just kind of drain out of my mouth. Um, so they didn't do too much, uh, work on me in, in the helicopter that I'm aware of, um, just cause I was on my stomach. Well, the other thing too, as long as you're, they call it ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation, as long as you got those three things going, it's like, um, you know, the, the most important thing is that golden hour, what they call, you got it, you got significant trauma. They got to get you somewhere you know, yeah. quickly. Yeah. So the, um, the doc on the, on the helicopter, he actually did all his residency. It's, uh, our level one trauma center. It's a uh, Loma Linda. And we had another trauma center that was a little bit closer. Uh, but he's like, Hey, take him to Loma Linda. Like, trust me, he he's going to be all right. He can make it over there. Um, luckily he did take me over there. There was a, you know, two orthopedic surgeons on duty. There was a maxwell facial surgeon on duty in which I'm uh, told is like pretty much unheard of that all these people are going to be there at the same time all at once. So were they there because of the shooting or were they there just because that happened to be scheduling or just, just by chance, just by chance that they were all there at the same time. It was a bad day, but it, it's kind of like, but at least it sounds like a lot of the stuff was working out for is like everybody you needed was there. Yep. Um, so they get us, uh, so on the helicopter, he's telling me, he's like, Hey, we're 10 minutes out. We're five minutes out. See, I'm still surprised you are conscious at this point. Yeah, and I, I told him, and I, uh, I, I asked the doctor. I, I was like, uh, I was like, hey, um, tell my, uh, tell my brothers I'm sorry, and, and tell my wife I love her. And then uh, he, uh, it's actually a funny story. He, uh, he tells me he's like, he's like, dude, he's like, you're fine. He's like, we're gonna be having beers this time next week. And then I, I was like, fuck, like, I just thought I was going to die for like the past like 40 minutes. And <laughs> I was like, I'm being a, you know, big old wuss out here. Like, all right. But he was full of shit. I was in a coma that time next week, but, but I, it's what I needed to hear. Cause it actually, it helped. And I'm like, okay, all right, cool. Like I, it's not that bad then. He, um, you didn't want somebody going, yeah, you're right, pal. You're screwed. Give me your last will and testament. You know, I'll take it here yeah. for you. I mean, that's yeah. just, what a what a great had, now had this doc had any um, military training or was he just just an ER doc? ER doc is a uh, brother's a highway patrol officer and does see a bunch there of you stuff. go Murph yep. state patrol comes from good lineage <laughs> good yeah. stock. Uh, well, there's an exception occasionally. Yeah. 
So how long of a yeah, hel- this is fantastic? Oh yeah, man. How long of a helicopter ride was it? Uh, I don't not it, it's not too far. Maybe 15, 15 minutes, twenty minutes. In the so helicopter. from the time you were shot, the first rounds you took till the time you actually made it into the hospital, was that like within an hour? Yeah. Mm-hmm. See, and that's why I'm saying it's, they call it the golden hour, man. You got it. If you can get somebody with significant trauma in during that first hour, the survival rate just goes just goes up. And what planning and forethought to have uh, the, the the medical airship out there, you know, um, have your medic ship out there, you know, have all of this kind of support out there. Um, yeah. With a trauma doctor on board. Unbelievable. I mean, that's a guy I should never have to buy another beer again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, send me his name. I will send him a case of fantastic Belgian beer, which I just received another shipment of. Uh, are you a Belgian beer fan, Alex? I, I like the IPAs. Oh, dude, I gotta. Okay, I gotta. I gotta break you of another bad habit. That one and uh, disappointing your brothers. Um, uh, so you're in there. So when's what's the last thing you remember from that day before you wake up out of this coma? Yeah, so I remember getting wheeled into the. Uh, uh, emergency room and they start um cutting all my clothes off and they start cutting my boots off and i remember they're kind of tugging at my left boot so i'm trying to tell the nurse i'm like hey you gotta like you're gonna rip my leg off you gotta cut that thing um so she's getting my can boot you off. even talk at this point yeah i can talk a little bit uh I, I think they can make out some of the stuff um i was kind of amazed that i had not passed out yet um are I, you more talking like somebody who's had like the shot of Novocaine at the dentist and stuff where your face like is all numb and half stuff or how are you? I mean, cause with your tongue half gone and, and yeah. your jaw missing, it's like, I'm surprised you can even articulate words. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was able to get, get, get some words out. And then, uh, um, I remember the lady was, uh, she, the, another nurse was trying to take my uh, watch off my wrist and I kind of looked up and like, and I saw kind of all that, my arm, I'm like, man, that is fucking gross. Um, so she's getting my watch. I'm like, and she's t- taking the strap off and I'm trying to tell her like, Hey, just cut my watch off. I'm thinking like, you just cut a pair of $300 Danners off. Like, I don't really care about this stupid ass G shock, you know, but, uh, she's able to get my watch off me and, and, and save my watch. So she didn't cut my watch, but my, my Danners were, were toast. So, um, I tell you watching those folks work at accidents or other stuff, trauma like that, those shears that they've got in there. I mean, they are, there's a reason they do it. You just got to get all that clothing off. They don't, and they rightly so, they can when they can, but they rightly don't care. They cut everything off because it's like the whole point is to check you for bleeds. Are you bleeding out? You know, have you got other wounds that they need yeah. to know about? They, they've got to do a full diagnostic on you so they can start figuring out what's the priority to work on with you. So, yeah. And yeah, they cut, they cut those, yeah, cut, cut my tack vest off, cut it all off. Um, and then, uh, I remember the doctor came over and he was telling, I don't really remember what he was saying. Um, and then I, I told him, I'm like, hey, I'm, I remember thinking, I'm like, hey, like, I'm telling him, I'm a pretty look, good looking guy, so make sure you fix my face. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. The, the yeah. fucking vanity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was trying to do it more of a joke. It was probably the pain meds were kicking in. And uh-huh. then uh, and then they start wheeling me out. And then um, our, our sheriff, Sheriff John McMahon, was there. And I was like what the hell is the sheriff doing here already? Um, but he heard that they were taking us to Loma Linda, so he drove right over there, him and uh, another um, detective on the department. And I was like, I was like, man, I don't know if I was dreaming or what, but there, as they wheel me out, I see him, and uh, he comes over and, and talked to me, and I, I told him I was sorry for getting shot, and then that was the last thing I remember. 
Now, so, and you, you mentioned earlier, they put you into a medically induced coma. How long did that last? Uh, that was about a week. Um, maybe a little over a week, but I remember I, I, I came to, and I had the breathing tube in for a really long time. Um, and I came to, and that's, uh, that's when I realized McKay, uh, had died. Um, there was no one in my room, um, or anything, which was kind of weird. And then, uh, his funeral was actually on the, on the TV in my room. See, see, when you told us this yesterday, it's like, how eerie is that? Just the fact is that the only time you're in a medically induced coma, but you wake up long enough to see on TV, the funeral of your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, did it register for you at that time, or did you just sense it and then process it later? Were you able, were you awake long enough to actually understand what that meant? I don't think I, I don't think I really did because I was so I was so out of it at that point. Um, I remember I, when I started coming to a little bit, and I had that breathing tube in, and I couldn't communicate with with anybody. And uh, so my wife had just had this our our baby, and we're at the hospital, and she had to get a C section and stuff. So we're there for a couple of days longer, and um, you know. It's, you know, the first kid, you try and do everything you can. And my wife, uh, she wanted this, uh, like, white cherry icy. And the only place they sold it was at Target, like, across town. And so I went over there, like, every day and would get her this icy uh, when she was in the hospital. You know, I was I was taking care of her just two weeks ago, and now she's back in the hospital taking care of me. Um, so when I start coming to, I'm so fucking thirsty. All I want to do is I want to, like, pound a Gatorade or something. Um and I'm like trying to tell them like I, I need water or something, but I have this, you know, breathing tube in. So they bring me a piece of paper and I'm like have the pen and the paper. They're kind of holding it for me because of my left arm is all, you know, all wrapped up and stuff. And I'm trying to I'm just sitting there and I could not like figure out how to write. <laughs> I couldn't even do it. So I just end up getting, you know, a little frustrated and kind of th- throw the pen to the side and go back to sleep for another day or two. How did it feel having that breathing tube in? Because that's the reason it's in there. It's doing the breathing for you at that point. Yeah, so it wasn't too bad. When they took it out, I just, you know, obviously kind of scarred my lungs or my uh, throat or my esophagus a little bit and just had a really raspy voice for about a month. So now, did you come out of the coma or did they bring you out of the coma? Did they decide it was time to bring you back out? Yeah, they probably just backed off my uh, medication a little bit and then kind of came to and then, um, you know, backed off on the pain meds and stuff like that. How long were you in ICU? Uh, a month. I was in ICU for a month. What's your first f- full vivid memory you remember after waking up out of the coma? Uh, I just remember I was there and I'm kind of looking at everything and I have this, uh, so th- the way they did my leg, they were going to amputate my leg, um, but they were able to kind of do like a quick fix on it and kind of get it stable. So they had this, I had that whole like external fixator on it and I had pins going all the way up almost to like my waistline all the way down, you know, my knee, all the way to my ankle, and then with the long, you know, bars on it, just a really weird, uncomfortable, can't move on my back um, position. Uh, so that I remember waking up to that, and then you know, my brothers coming in, my mom and dad coming in, um, and then uh, Jeremy King. He uh, he came in. I think he spent the entire month at the hospital with me, sleeping in the parking lot. I think our captain had to order him to finally go home. Um, yeah, but he he was there. Part of the brotherhood. Yep. Were you stable the whole time, or was there a time to where um, they thought they were going to lose you? No, I think I don't think there was any any question on that. Once I got, came out of that initial surgery, um, I think there was some concern just because they were doing so much stuff at once. You know, I 
they're operating on my face, my arm, my leg, kind of all all at the same time in this operating room. Um, and then just the, the normal things like infection. A lot of my leg muscle died, uh, like in my calf and stuff like that. Um, so we'd have to go in there and, and, and get that cut out. And then it went back from – then it was just a concern. Again, they were going to – I had a lot of uh, – uh, a lot of nerve damage in the, in my leg. Um, so just the thought that I was going to lose my leg on that. And then there was a time when they, I thought I was going to lose my left arm as well, but they were, the doctors are amazing. And uh, like I, uh, my leg doctor, Dr. Laura Sharp, her, uh, younger brother is a LA County deputy and she's freaking awesome and took this case really personal and knew from the second I woke up that I, I wanted to go back to work and, you know, she was going to do, she, she, she was like very honest and didn't give me any false hope, but, um, you know, she was really committed to, to get me back to where I wanted to go. How old were you when this happened? Uh, 26. That's a lot of sh- shit to go through at 26. Uh, yeah. Like, you, cause you just said earlier too, and most of us thought too, when we were that young, we're 10 feet tall, we're bulletproof, we're invincible, you know? Yeah. Nothing can hurt us. You, you know, and I mean, you're in good physical shape. Did that, uh, did the doctors ever tell you that had a lot to do with, with your survival and your recovery? Yeah, they did. They, uh, like I said, I was a big runner at the time. They said that had a lot to do with it. Um, and then my, my age, just being young. To all the cops out there listening, man, stay in shape, stay in shape. You know, we're old men now. I'm, my lower chest is bigger than my upper chest now, but <laughs> I'm not on the job anymore either. So yep. you guys stay in shape and take care of yourselves. Well, I just did an hour on the Peloton this morning, man, staying in, staying in shape, uh, some power zone pyramid training. So uh, we're talking You're about that. You're still as ugly as ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, bro. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, you traitorous bastard moving in Florida. Yeah. Um, how long was it before you got the full debrief on the events that happened? When when did you when did you when were you officially told uh, that your partner McKay had died and that uh, Dorner was behind all of? Or, I mean, what happened with Dorner? When when were you kind of first officially briefed on this? Uh, yeah, I think I mean they came. You know, my buddies and you know my coworkers, and my brothers and stuff. They came in the hospital and and told me. Um, I didn't know like the exact details of it until uh, I was probably a month and a half I was in the rehab hospital and then the homicide detectives came over and uh, interviewed me about everything that happened and kind of filled me in on some of the details. Um, Was there, what was the thing that for you was the most, um, I mean, you found out a lot of stuff after the fact, but you were there for a lot of this. You knew um, McKay got shot. Um, You know, then obviously, like I said, you woke up and you found he died. What were the biggest What were the biggest impacts to you on this whole situation? You know, what what were the events that impacted you the most out of this? Uh, obviously, you know, McKay losing his life. Um, it, it's just losing somebody on this. You know, a friend and um, like I said, he was my farms instructor at the academy. Uh, where we worked together in Big Bear, he was a detective there. You know, we drank beers together. I got a picture of uh, me and me and him. Um, on our graduation night, you know, we all went to a local bar together and having drinks and stuff. Uh, just an awesome dude. And I knew he just had a, he had a three month old baby at home. Um, just horrible. Were you able to travel then to Washington DC for the national law enforcement officers memorial when they did the candlelight vigil? Were you able to go out for that? No, I wasn't. 
So tell us how long it took before you could actually start doing things again. How long are you recuperating? Oh yeah, so um, it, it was it was it was rough. I couldn't really do anything because I had all that stuff on my leg. And then, uh, like I talked a little bit when we spoke yesterday, you know, just I was always focused on uh, on the next step. Um, mm-hmm. So that's kind of all we really thought about, and just trying to have a good attitude about it, and then focus on you know the first one was get out of the ICU. Um, and then go to the rehab hospital, get out of the rehab hospital and get home. So there was always, you know, these little, uh, little goals that, that we're getting back to. And then with the main goal of obviously getting back to work, um, I got home for a little bit and then they, you know, I'd have another surgery on my arm or my face or my leg. And then they eventually, uh, were able to come up with a plan, how they're going to fix my leg. Um, so that, you know, they took all the pins out and they rectus set and then I was off of it for, for months. Um, but as soon as I started walking again without using, and the walker was another issue cause my left arm, you know, was shot as well. So they, I had this walker with, uh, had like a little arm bracing on it. And then, uh, I dropped foot really bad with the nerve damage. Couldn't move my toes, couldn't move my foot. Um, so they built me this carbon fiber, uh, like brace with it, with the insole that would go in my shoe so I could, uh, start walking a little bit and then just physical therapy a couple times a week. One of the pictures we saw was you got to throw out uh, a pitch at the Angels game. Yeah, that was awesome. Did you make it to home plate? Oh yeah, I didn't. I didn't throw from the mound. I didn't want to be disrespectful and put uh, you know my Walker track marks on the uh, on the mound. Yeah, I think uh, Jared Weaver was pitching that night, and he kind of scares me a little bit. So I'm like, I'm not gonna. I don't want to mess up his <laughs> mess up what he's got going on out there. So I I threw it from uh, you know at the front of the mound, but yeah, I made it over home plate. How, that was so nice of them to do that too. Now, were the Angels your team, or did you just suck it up and put on their jersey just to get out there? Oh no, Angels were my team. Yeah, my uh, my FTO, uh, who was a detective up there at the time, my old FTO, uh, Lonnie Siebert. He uh, when he goes to spring training every year, and then um, he ended up was talking, sitting next to someone from the Angels, and was telling them the story because this was uh, spring trainings in oh, um, like a. In the spring. Yeah, it's March. Uh, I'm trying to think the dates of it. Yeah, so it's probably like the middle of March. Um, yeah, so it was pretty, uh, you know, it was new. It was uh, fresh still in everyone's mind about everything that happened. So he tells him, you know, tell him that he works Big Bear and knows me and stuff like that. So uh, they ended up getting, exchanging emails. Um, and uh, Lon, my uh, old FTO kind of set that whole thing up for me. So how how long were you into your recuperation when you went out there and threw out that pitch? Uh, I think that was in, might have been the end of July, I think. Yeah, I think that was the so end of July. about five months. Yeah. In. Yeah. But yeah, I look like shit. I'm so freaking skinny. and. Well, did they improve your looks, though? That's all I want to know. What do you think? How did they do for you? I, they do. <laughs> I see my face doctor. I was like, God damn. I go, you gave me a nice square jawline. Like. You made me look a lot better. Well, does your wife agree? Uh, I think so. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the only really problem I have with my, like, just the uh, right side of my face is numb. So when I smile, like, my lips don't move or uh, that kind of thing. Hey, let's talk for a minute about your family and, and how, how this impacted your wife. How did this, how did this uh, impact her? Because you, you would have had to, obviously, by the time you get ready to come home, they've got to probably put some things in place for you, you know, some assistive things, you know. So how how did she handle this? 
She uh, she handled it really good. I think a lot of and like I said, we got this you know brand new baby, a first you know first time parents. I think a lot of her time was preoccupied with that, and then taking care of me and you know making sure I could get to my doctor's appointments and stuff like that. And then uh, you know my family and I are, are really close, and then uh, my sister in laws, you know obviously both my brothers uh, are on the department stuff, so they very aware of what's going on. So everyone was a big help with that. But yeah, my wife was. Uh, handled it very well, was really good with everything and um just took care of everything everything that I needed. But again, after being home for, you know, seven months, I think I was she's getting kind of sick of me. So. Ready for you to get back out. Or <laughs> yeah. she's good. Oh yeah. Hey, so did your brothers ever come up and have that talk with you like I told you not to go, I'm gonna kick your ass now? <laughs> oh no, not at all. They knew they they knew, yeah. It was just but it's got to be tough on them. A couple of the pictures I saw I see people around your bedside and you know they're not they're not totally sad looks, but they're not happy looks either. And it's like, I mean, I could see on your brother, and it was easy to figure out which ones are your brothers. It's just that look. It's like, um, man, I wouldn't know how to feel. I mean, it's like, it's just got to be, it's like, I know they're praying for you every day to get better and stuff, but it's like, but it's it's tough. See, it, it has to be tough seeing your brother shot up like that, lying in a hospital bed, knowing how close you came to punching, getting your ticket punched. You know, and and, and you're, you're wanting revenge is what you're wanting. You want you're wanting to retaliate because your brother was hurt, not your biological brother. You know, but Dorner's already dead. Thank the good Lord. You know, he's he's no longer walking on our earth. So it's uh, how do you you know how do the, I'm sure they're looking for some kind of mechanism to relieve that those feelings. But you know, you're you're the little brother, man, and they're there. You're your big brothers that are always looking to take out take care of you and your wife, man. It takes a special woman to put up with the crap we go through, and and this is just even worse than you know I could ever imagine going through what you went through. As God bless her, she's a special lady. Yeah, absolutely. And then yeah, not giving me any grief about you know going back or anything like that. But yeah, it it was hard. I mean, like my brothers, they worry about me. Um, I remember my brother Matt would call me multiple times a day. Hey, y'all good? You eat all this other stuff, and I that's why I was one of the big driving forces for me to go back to, to work, um, was like, all right, cool. If I can get back there, at least light duty and go sit in an office somewhere, I think it'll kind of like relieve everybody. Um, like, okay, he's getting better. He's good. Um, he's back to work and like, we can kind of start moving on from this. Did you get angry? You know, there, I, I try to have the best attitude that I could with everything. I was, I was never, I was never angry about what happened. Obviously you're angry about McKay losing his life, but there is nowhere else in the world that I would have rather been than where I was that day. I wanted to be there. I would have been pissed if I wasn't there. And now I can't have a bad attitude about it because it didn't go the way that I wanted it to go. You know what you, and here's a lesson for all our listeners. You know, I mean, we all think we have our, our down points in our lives, the vast, vast majority of us never have to go through what you went through. And the fact that you can, you're setting little milestones that keep you encouraged, your little goals. And, and as soon as you reach one, you know what your next one is. And that kept you motivated. And there's a lesson right there, you know, on, on never giving up. Speaking of that, um, he was talking about low points. We talked about this yesterday. What was your lowest point in your recovery process? When, when did you hit rock bottom? You know, there was times like when I was at home uh, that obviously being young like that and now not being able to move or walk or all that other things. But when, prior to that, like I didn't really have any issues like 
you know, these guys risked their lives to save mine. McKay lost his life. I put my family's going through this. Like having a shitty attitude is not going to help with anything. And me being pissed off isn't going to fix anything either. So it, it wasn't really didn't make any sense to do that. But yeah, I would there would be days like, you know, I'm all medicated and stuff like that where you feel like shit or either, you know, I go in for a surgery and then I'm throwing up because the anesthesia and, and all that stuff. Um but yeah, I didn't really it didn't my low point didn't really hit until I came back to work and then I kind of re injured myself. I mean, you, you re-injured yourself. Don't gloss over that. That was This was your dream. You always wanted to be on the SWAT, the Special Enforcement Division. I mean, this was your shot, right? So you were so anxious to get back, you might have pulled the trigger, no pun intended, a little too soon, right? Yeah, so I came back light duty seven months later, and then uh, um, I think uh, I it, it was uh, like October 2014, um, I had gotten promoted and then I had the opportunity to go through our SWAT school, which is three weeks long. Uh, we have it twice a year, every six months. Um, so, and I was, I started, I couldn't, uh, when I started, uh, training again, um, to get back to work, I couldn't run just cause all the nerve damage and stuff. So my brother, Matt was really into cycling and, uh, he's like, Hey, I think if, you know, you, uh, and I was drinking way too many milkshakes cause my mouth was wired shut for so long i was like man i'm getting fat like i gotta <laughs> i gotta <laughs> i gotta do something but it's just hard because you don't really think like how you're gonna lose weight you know like i can't move my leg i'm not like how you're gonna get active so he's like hey i'm gonna bring my um my road bike over and i think we can clip your feet in here and you'll be able to to cycle a little bit so uh he brings his bike over to my house clips my feet in there and i'm like oh shit so i'm riding around the street i just couldn't get out of the the pedals I couldn't unclip at all. So when I when I oh, wanted to stop, Fuck, let's hope you didn't fall over. You just <laughs> yeah. I can't stop. Yeah. So my brother Matt would have you to, panic right there. Yeah, he'd have to catch me a little bit just because I couldn't move my left foot to get out of the uh, the pedals or anything. But I ended up um, buying a road bike, uh, doing that, and cycling with my brothers and then guys on uh, I was working with now, and it was kind of this whole like journey. Now before everything, I was focused on like work and you know, doing this and getting to this position. I was like, all right, cool. I'm going to like take this as far as I, I can go and, and get back, you know, back and do all this other stuff. So that really helped, uh, was awesome. I love cycling. Now I always used to make fun of my brother for doing it. And the guys were in the, you know, all the spandex stuff, but uh, Steve I, Murph, are you listening? Murph, are you listening? I'm still making fun. I'm, I'm listening and I'm still going to make fun of you. No, but I, yeah, I bought all in. I went all into the cycling. Yeah. Thing. My man. I love it. Yeah. You know uh, what a mammal is? Uh, what they call a mammal? Mammal? Uh, uh, Middle-aged male in lycra. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. So I started doing that, and then I started running, and this because I and I knew this like this opportunity a couple months prior was going to come up that I was going to you know could possibly do the uh, go through our SWAT school. So I started running, and then I'm like, Shh. I had a my old Nike track of this this little route i'd run at my house and then i'm like doing it and then i'm start looking at my times from prior to me getting shot i'm like fuck i run faster now than i did before because before i never bionic man yeah before i was just i was just running to run just like all right cool i'm gonna run three miles before work or something like that never gave a shit about my pace never about my time never didn't have that mental strength i know some people are born with it i had to go through this to get it and i'm like i just kind of became obsessed with it and luckily i had a a good partner. Uh, his name's Tim Jackson, who I worked with, uh, another guy from my academy and my brothers. And now this whole, like we had this whole training team, 
you know, and it was kind of, it was kind of cool. And they went, went along with it with me. Um, so sorry to go on a tangent on that one, but yeah, so I, I getting ready for SWAT school. I think uh, it was two weeks before I'm running it at our Academy and I was off my leg for so long, so long. And my, my, you know, my bones are weak. I, I have to run all crazy cause I can't really lift my, uh, my left foot up and I end up digging my foot into the dirt and I end up breaking my foot. Um, uh, you know, two weeks before I start the SWAT school, which was my end goal. Like all I ever wanted to do, you know, one of the main things I thought in the hospital, like I'm never, not only going to come back to work, I'm not going to be able to do this. It was just, uh, and not only that, but now these guys that are on this team had saved my life, which made me want to do it, you know, 10 times more, uh, than before. And, uh, so, so did you know you broke, broke it at the time? No, I thought I like, I was trying to convince myself I was running with uh, a couple of my partners. It's all swelling up and it hurts, but no, it's just a flesh wound. I'll be fine. So I, we're running, they're actually running with me and, I, and I, I'm like, oh, fuck. And I, I heard it snap in there and I'm like, fucking A. And I was like, I'm trying to walk and uh, they're like, what's wrong? I was like, oh, I don't know. I think I like pulled something in my foot. <laughs> so uh, Yeah, like a bone from a joint. That's what you pulled. Yeah, yeah. So I, I start you know, I walk on it a little bit and uh, I'm like, man, this is jacked up. I was like, I'm just going to walk back to the cars. I think we're like maybe like two miles in at that point. And then one of the guys like, no, you're not walking. He's like, so he ran back out the cars. Um, we end up going back to work. I start trying to walk around the office a little bit. I'm like, man, this is, this fucking is starting to really hurt. So I called my, uh, my leg doctor and, and I knew she was going to be pissed. Cause I had to get cleared from her to even go through SWAT school. She had to give me the okay on it just so that, um, they knew my leg wasn't going to freaking explode or anything, uh, you know, repellent or whatever. Um, but she was really not on board with it until I, you know, convinced her for like 30 minutes just to like, give me this one shot to do it. Um, so I called her, we do the x-rays and she's like, I told you dummy, like you broke your foot. Um, so I was back at home, not going, not going to be able to make it through the SWAT school. Uh, it was just, I was off work again, you know, going up the stairs on my butt, it was just, uh, it brought me back to where I was like, you know, two years ago or a year and a half ago. Um, this brought back a lot of probably things I didn't deal with, uh, the first time. And, uh, but I, again, I was just feeling sorry for myself, but, uh, that was probably my lowest point. And then that lasted, I think over the weekend. And then on that Monday, I'm like, you know what, I'm going to stay in this position. I think I can get better and I'm going to try it again in six months and heal up, which I probably should have done in the first place. I actually probably should have waited another year after going through the SWAT school and stuff. I, I, I think, um, I probably should have waited at least another year before I even attempted that. Yeah. Cause we know patience is one of your virtues. I know, there right? when you applied for the Academy before you were supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 16 years old. I'm just getting my application in early. Pal. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so when you went and tried out for the SWAT team a second time, did you make it? I did. Yeah. Uh, hardest three weeks of my life. Um, but yeah, I loved it. It was such a relief. And I remember the day we graduated on that third Friday and I was going to meet my team, uh, we we're doing some operation out in um, Arizona and I was, remember driving out there and it was, was kind of like this relief, like this like weight had been taken off my shoulders um, that I didn't have to, it was like a conclusion to this whole event. And then. Uh, so brought you some closure to the entire shooting event. Absolutely. And then now after that, I'm like, fuck, I was like, I need to find something else. Cause that's all I've thought about for the past, like 
you know, <laughs> two, two years is doing this. And I'm like, what am I going to do now? So, yeah. See, that's the thing with astronauts. They go, once you land on the moon, it's like, what's next? I mean, you know, so, but so from the time you were shot till the time you graduated squ- squats, squats, squat school, squat sure. school, that's Murphy down in Florida, squats, <laughs> squat stool, squat school. Uh, what was that like two years, a little over? Yeah, so I got shot in, uh, was that, February 2013, and then I graduated SWAT school in April of 2015. Did you ever think you were going to make it to do that? I mean, I know in your mind, but I mean, but when you were sitting there and stuff, did you did you just think, this is it, my dream's gone, I'm just going to be sitting in an office somewhere doing light duty for the rest of my career? Yeah, I mean, they thought, there was like no way I was going to ever come back to work. Um, I remember I was like kind of like getting ready to come back, like looking into making some phone calls about what it's going to take for me to come back light duty. And then I was, I remember I was telling my physical therapist about it and he's like, dude, there's no way like you're ever going to be a, be a cop again. Like he's like, there, he's like, I don't think you're going to be able to like ever run or like walk, you know, normally like that. There's a great motivational person. Yeah. And that's a, a lot of the, the, I mean like there are a lot of those doctors and stuff. They kind of like shoot straight with you on that stuff too. Um, like, I don't, I don't know what the reasoning is behind it. Uh, but yeah, that's why he's like, yeah, you're probably never going to, he's like, you're probably never going to like be able to do that kind of stuff again. So do you send him a fucking Christmas card going, Hey, here's me not doing what you said I couldn't do. Here's me doing what you said I couldn't do. I I don't know if that's what it was like, or like he didn't want me to do too much. Cause I remember a couple of times, like I was, uh, in the wheelchair and then, uh, um, I remember I, I went in there with, uh, with the walker a couple of times. Um, and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, you can't like walk on your, on your leg yet. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Like I forgot, you know? And then like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cause it was a pain in the ass. Like, cause I remember I went there and, um, my wife had the baby a couple of times. I so I'd have to go in there, you know, get the wheelchair out and, and I could, I could walk on it a little bit. It wasn't too bad. And was, we're just going from the parking lot in there. I'm like, I'm not getting that stupid ass wheelchair out. So and then, uh, but yeah, so he'd make me get wheeled out to my car by one of the, the nurses or whatever. But so he probably, he's probably trying to keep me in line so I wouldn't try and go run on it or something. When people said things like that to you, do you want to say, hold my beer? <laughs> Dude, yeah. I've been shot five times. I've done all of this. Don't, don't, that's the thing. It's like, don't tell me I can't do it. I mean, you're doing, here's somebody, you weren't just where you were shot and how you were shot. And now, You've run, you've done Ironmans. Yeah. So again, like once I had that SWAT school thing kind of out of the way, I was like, I, you're, you know, you're always looking for like, I don't know, to, that, that kind of stuff is just like straight self punishment, but it's the only thing I can care, c- compare it about, like is getting shot and going through that and building that mental toughness is doing, you know, those endurance type of events. Um, so we were doing that stuff and, um, you know, we were cycling and, and running. And then I got, I started doing like our Baker to Vegas team, which, uh, it's like a big law enforcement event, um, out here. We, it's a relay race where you run from, uh, like Baker into Las Vegas. Um, so I ended up doing that, uh, qual- I ended up qualifying for like our, our department's like elite team, our fast team and started running on that. And then my partner and I, uh, we would, we're super competitive. So I don't know if you use this app, it's called Strava. Yeah, I do that with my bike all the time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're on, we're on Strava and me and uh, me and my buddy Tim. So we're working together and we're running and we're cycling and doing all this stuff. And 
like we would we were trying to like it was this went on for probably like three years of us being competitive about who's going to get the most mileage who has the fastest time and then strava has these like prs for these routes so we're out there like battling each other and uh luckily in the division that we're at we got a uh workout we got an hour workout time in the morning and stuff so we go run or do whatever and then after work we go uh ride bikes and again like we love drinking beer too so it was just an excuse to go uh hey no and that's it's not an excuse you got to carb up if you're you know it's perfectly acceptable to drink beer when you're out bike riding it's carbs you got to yeah. get them carbs yeah for sure we actually yeah we just kind of started this uh this kind of training uh this training company um maybe some apparel and stuff we were just kind of we've just kind of started it but it's called earn it athletics and it's, it's called just, what what's the name of it again it's called earn it athletics earn uh, it athletic is it like earn it athletics.com we're going to give you a shout out here help us yeah you suck at marketing pal just come well we just, we just kind of started it we just kind of launched the instagram thing we're getting some apparel made but um so we'd always say that like uh like we're going to go drink some beers, say we're going to drink some beers after work. It's but like, we're going right, to earn it. We're going to earn it. So it's like, dude, we got to at least run a 5k if we're going to do that then. So we fucking bring, put our running shoes on and, and go run. And we go, you know, to the restaurant and, and have some beers and stuff or go for a bike ride. And then, so yeah, it was like, if we're going to, we're going to do that, we're going to do some sort of, uh, some sort of bike ride or run or something to like earn that. It. Yep. Well, do do you have a you have a website yet? No, not yet. We just got to we started our Instagram stuff and So what's um, what's your Instagram handle? Oh, jeez, I'm going to have to look it up. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to have to I'm going to have to work with you on how to how it works in the private world here. It's like you got to have these things if we're going to market your apparel for you, you know, help, you know, toss me a bone here. We yeah, we we just launched it like uh probably like 4 days ago. Yeah, but it's uh Ernie Athletics and it's uh, uh it's got the our logo on there and then a, a thing of uh me and my buddy tim there but yeah we say that slowly okay what's the r-n-i-t athletics yeah so what we'll do is when we post this and we'll post it on our instagram too um we'll, we'll tag you on it and stuff and you know we'll, we'll uh but we, we want to get the special we want to get the special alex collins i want my face to look better shirt so yeah <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, it was a total, like, that's what I was focused on. That's what I was doing. And, um, it was cool to have these guys, you know, go, go along it, uh, the way with me doing that. All right. Tell me what your, what does your, uh, picture look like on there? Uh, it's just, it's got our logo on there. It's like a blue, uh, looks like a shield. EA? Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's two others on here. One looks like a girl's butt. No, not, that not. could be, you never know. <laughs> you got to earn that too, Murph. So we're following. Look at there. Yeah. All right. You got new followers. Awesome. Yeah. We'll, we'll follow. So, hey, um, you know what? We're getting towards the end of this, but I want to ask you just a couple. These are more serious questions uh, because it's tough. You know, I've lost friends. Merce lost friends. But to lose a partner out there with you like that, that's just – I can't even imagine. So I'm not even going to say I understand what you feel. Don't have any idea. How do you handle that every February 13th? What What's – what? what what do you do and how have you how have you dealt with this too um uh so pretty much it's just on february 13th i you know again talk to my brothers and then uh every year um i think on the 7th um officer crane's uh brother jason the he has a a, a party at a restaurant every year to celebrate his brother's life um, 
so we all meet up out there and and get together and and have some drinks and then normally uh me and uh, Danny Rosa and Larry Lopez will go get dinner and have drinks on the uh, on the thirteenth. But with that, I mean, like with McKay losing his life, it's just again this opportunity for me to go and 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 talk about this. I do talk to every graduating class of our academy and and do this. And that was something I, I didn't mention. Um, when I went to the academy, uh, Jason Hendricks, um, he was my TAC officer. He's still in the department, but he was in a really uh, bad shooting. Um, uh, I think it was in – he's going to kill me, but I li- I've heard his story like 100 times. But it was in – I think it was like in the late 90s, 96, 97, um, and he was shot I think uh, eight times uh, with a 9 millimeter. Uh, he was at Circuit City shopping with his wife and then uh, – one of the clerks, her ex-husband came in and tried to pull her out of the store at gunpoint. He confronted him and ended up getting shot um, eight times in a gun battle with the guy. So Jason was shot really bad, and he came back to work. And then when I went to the academy, he was my TAC officer. And I remember seeing him, and uh, we had really similar leg injuries. And this guy was probably uh, in his mid to late 30s when he was a TAC officer, and he is outrunning all of us. And I'm, you know, 21 years old, and this freaking dude is— got a jacked up leg like his leg is crooked just because with all the surgeries and stuff and he's he's out there um you know smoking us so and he came and visited me at the hospital sat with me um talked with me and was like a huge motivating factor uh to get me back to work and then to where i am today and then again i can i can talk to the academy and hopefully uh and, and share that message with them as well what is your big message um, for the academy when you talk to these guys? What is the primary message you talk to them about? Uh, I just kind of tell them the story and just um, and just again, you know, staying in shape, working out, training, tactics. I mean, we saw the guys that had the extra training and the you know the tactics, how they immediately went into action, knew what to do, didn't even think about it. It was like second nature, and then. You know, when I went back to work or when I went back to patrol and I ended up getting into that other shooting, it was just, again, I had these extra tactics, this training where it's just uh, like this muscle memory. You don't even think about it. You just do it um, about how like to never uh, stop doing that. And then, you know, when I went back to patrol as a as a sergeant, you know, being that in that supervisor position, um, it was cool that I'd been through all this stuff and I can get with these guys and, you know, meet with them before work and we work out or go for a run or do something just so they, you know, you never lose that. Yeah. You're being a motivating factor for them. They're thinking, well, hell, if he can get through all this and, and he's still doing this, there must be some reason. There's a good reason. And and I, they look at you and they go, man, look at that jaw. That looks like a, <laughs> that looks like a Hollywood jaw. Man. <laughs> so um, have you had added any more members to your family since the shooting? Yeah, I have uh, uh, two more kids and my daughter, uh, Alexa, she's uh, she's six. And then my my youngest, Bo, he's four. Nice. And who's the oldest? Uh, Benjamin. Benjamin, Alexa, and Bo. Yep. All right. Well, they've got some huge footsteps to follow in, too. Look, you know, we had talked about going into some other stories, but look, this we have gone so long on this. And the other thing, too, is I don't want to take away from this story by getting into some others. We'll, we'll bring you back for those. We'll talk about that later. If, you, if you're up to it, you know, we'll— uh, We'll fly out. We'll have a beer. We'll do an on the ground. You know, Murph. We'll, we'll, we may get dragged out to the uh, uh, Southern California gang conference out there. So uh, I'll, I'll be there. Hopefully, I'll see you guys there. Oh, you're you're gonna be there? Yeah. 
Cool. So let's just go ahead and play it right now. We're going to do a podcast interview with it because let's just we're going to we're going to record an on the ground episode and we're going to cover some of the other things you talked about. But I don't want to I want to honor your story and I, I don't I don't want to take away from it by talking about some other because there's some look you lost a lost a, another friend, um, got into a, a pretty serious shooting, but. But this one, I think, stands in and of itself. This is just a huge lesson for people. And, and I got to tell you, man, you know, as we close this out is I didn't know where I was going to go with some of this stuff today. I mean, we'd, we had just had this call yesterday. Normally, Murph and I have time to do research, but your notes and stuff and the stuff you talk about, you know, and your pictures and everything, it's just easier just to let you tell your story. And uh, I got to tell you, this is, you know, they can't say this is me saluting you, brother. I mean, I can't tell you, we are always proud of the people we bring on. But for you to do what you did to survive the way you did, um, man, uh, other people just would have, you know, phoned it in and said, hey, I'm done. That's it. You know, quit. And you didn't. And not only did you not quit, you came back and accomplished every single goal you were wanting to do without the need of getting shot. You know, you didn't have to get shot to get on SED. Did anybody tell you that? <laughs> Yeah, but in yeah. addition to that, you're now in a leadership role, and you're you're taking on a uh, a true leadership role in which you're motivational to the younger guys that are coming up, and they need to see that, Appreciate you know, that. and and they need to understand that just because you get shot, just because you get shot, doesn't mean you're going to die. Mm -hmm. I mean, look at everything you're doing, man. This is after having Joe Pierasanti on here. I mean, he just made my freaking day, and now having you on here. I mean, I, it's this is just. Some of the best interviews we're doing, man. Joe gets shot through the head and he stands up. He wants to walk off the helicopter and they're no, lay the fuck down. Don't. And he got shot with the 762. Yeah. It was fucking Taliban and, you know, and these uh, 762 machine guns that they had out there. So. Yep. And, and on top of everything else, he's a world-class bodybuilder. He, he won just went the national competition. Here, There's something you see in there. You know, here's the thing. Last point. What I think. You, what you're talking about is that this is. Do you ever read David Goggins? Uh, uh -huh. You can't break me. Uh, but you know what exactly what I'm talking about, right? We are capable of so much more than what we th we we can do. Ninety percent more than what our brain tells us we can. Yep. Yeah. And I think that was you. I mean, you came back and you did that ninety percent more. I mean, did you think sitting with that breathing tube in there that you were going to be on SED, that you were going to be a sergeant, that you're going to be running Iron Man, that you're going to I mean, it's hard to think those things when you got a breathing tube down there and you're in and out of consciousness. Yeah, it doesn't even seem achievable at that time, yeah. Well, look, we are so proud. We're glad that you're here. Uh, absolutely. We want to honor the memory um, of Detective McKay, and we will absolutely do that. Um, you know, we say a toast to him tonight. Uh, and I got to apologize, too. I didn't mean to get so wrapped around the axle, but, man, it just— when I see it, just fucking stolen valor as far as I'm concerned. People who do this stuff, and it's like the real heroes— are, are Rosa and Lopez and uh, Musa and, I mean, fucking Rangers lead the way. You ask Army guys, these guys that get out there and do this shit, the people on the helicopters, the ER doc, yeah. the people who did all this stuff, man. But I'll tell you some of the biggest heroes besides you and your, your wife, you know, for, Absolutely. I mean, people forget how important it is to have that wife standing by your side. So you, you haven't even told us her name. Lila. Lila. Uh, yeah. Lila is a, if you're listening to this, Lila, if you've made it this far and not passed out from pure boredom, you're a rock star. We're sending, we're sending you beer, pal. What does she drink? Uh, she likes Modelo. Modelo. I thought, IPA and Modelo. I got to send you some real beer. Fuck this. I'm sending you some real beer. Just watch, just watch your, uh, just watch. It's not a, it, it's going to come in a brown package, but it's legit. Trust All me. All right. <laughs> 
It's probably going to be like PBR or something, Alex. No, I don't get excited. Of that man. in college, man. Old Milwaukee Light and Old Moosehead, man. Uh, you're yeah. you're going to get some. You're going to get some real beer. None of this cheap IPA stuff. And I'm oh. I'm going to get some haters. Going to get some haters. Well, hey, look, Alex. Let's 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 close this off. And uh, I think just what I want to do is just give you the last word. Um, what's the what's the biggest thing you have learned from everything that happened? You know, from from the loss of life, from the shooting, from the incident. What's the big thing for you that is is the biggest thing that you will never ever that will never leave you for the rest of your life? Uh, I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but just kind of once you go through this, um, like the little things don't really matter. Um, you know, especially going back to work, it's just I I, I don't get frustrated with these little issues or anything like that. Um, I kind of brush stuff off like, all right, like I'm not going to lose sleep over this or get upset about this. Um, sometimes that's good. And sometimes it's bad. Like when you don't really, I don't know when you live one day at a time, but it seems to be working for me. All right. You know, but I always, I told my buddy the other day, I'm like, it's like, Hey, you can't fear death so you can live free. Man. Well, except if your guys need OT, right? That's the only thing. I know. Yeah. This- there, I have like 20, miss text messages right now so <laughs> <laughs> all right well look man well let's let's bring this to a close this has been this has been an honor and we're so glad you shared this time with us all right i appreciate you guys absolutely alex thank you no brother thank you so right. much god bless you all right i'll see you guys in san diego Man, all I can say is if this doesn't make you reevaluate your priorities in life, and like he said, the biggest, his biggest takeaway is he doesn't sweat the small stuff anymore. It just does not matter. You're exactly right, man. And, and that's, that just, that spoke volumes to me in my personal life because, you know, you get caught up in the little minutia throughout the day, the little stupid things that you think are important. And then you look at what people are going through out there and, and they're fighting for their lives and their friends are being killed and... Uh, it just puts everything back into proper perspective. And one of the things I really liked about Alex's story is the fact that uh, 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 Dorner applied for LAPD. He never made it through probationary period, which is a good indication that the system is working, that they're using to weed out these these wackadoos that are, you know, what were his ulterior motives? You know, did he just want to join the cops to become a murderer? Because when he didn't make it in the cops, that's what he became. Uh, just fantastic story, Alex. Thank you so much, brother. It's an honor to have you on the show here. Well, and look, the other thing too is think about what he went through, the rehab and it. And then here's a guy they, number one, didn't expect to make it. Then number two, he made it, but then they didn't expect him to go back to work. And then he went back to work, but they didn't expect him to make SWAT. And then he made SWAT. It's like this guy would not let anything now stop him. Um, yeah. Don't put, don't put restrictions on him because he's going to blow him right out the door with you. I love it. Yeah. And let's just, let's close the loop on the piece of shit that is Chris Dorner. So Chris, uh, he was, he was killed. He, he, you know, he's, he suffered, I think the right kind of death. He burned to death in that, in that house up there. Um, and as deservedly so this guy had no, and here's the part that bothers me too, Steve, here's somebody who did serve our country, but he, he, he wasn't serving it in the way it should have been done. This guy had no respect for human life, you know, and just, again, it makes me wonder, 
was he doing anything in his naval side that somebody should have keyed in on to prevent this from happening? I mean, we don't know and we're not second guessing. All we're saying is that there were obviously indications there, but when he lost his appeal and he got out, everything seems to spring from February 1st when he punched out of the Navy. Everything started after that. So, you know, he'd been planning this for a while, but anyway. Absolutely. Well, and the other thing too, you know, we didn't tell people, uh, we'll have some additional stories with Alex. He was involved, um, with the San Bernardino terrorist attack that killed 13 people. He responded to that. He unfortunately lost another one of his partners. He, they switched shifts and this guy was working for him as a sergeant instead of him, got into a chase, shot and killed. And then he was in this epic shootout with a semi truck, you know, somebody who was some very dangerous stuff. So, uh, but we're going to, we may do that at the, when we're down at the Southern California gang concords, get some additional stories and he's got he he had so many stories we just could not tell him and do the main story on her absolutely and so you're going to be hearing about alex again uh and there's even more that we're going to tell you about we're going to keep it a secret now probably this summer or uh summer of next year i guess it would be right um but he's coming back man he's got some great stories we're going to do some good stuff so anyway so hey folks if you enjoyed that and if you enjoyed the work we're doing head on over to apple get that five stars it's magic we don't know how it works we just know that it does it's david copperfield david blaine you know harry houdini name it your favorite magician magician it all works also head on over to game of crimes podcast.com we've got so much information about the show pictures, everything. We're constantly updating it. Follow us on this thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. PayPal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes. Whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you more content. And then again, as always, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where you need to be. We got so much good content there. We've got new stuff coming out, case of the month, um, our weekly or a monthly live stream. This time it's going to be the Big Lebowski. And Steve holding up his finger. I'm not sure if he needs to fart again or if he wants to say something. <laughs> hey, I just it just hit me. Christmas is coming up, guys. So what about giving you know those you care about a subscription, a Patreon subscription to Game of Crimes? Or maybe go over to the merchandise page and order up some Game of Crimes merchandise for those you love. Good stuff. Which would be us. So remember... Tell one, share one. Tell one person, share one episode with them. Give them the gift of Game of Crimes, and we will give you the gift of us. Which And don't ever pull my finger if I hold it up. I'll tell you a story about that next time, what my daughter did to me when she was young <laughs> in public. But enough for now. So, guys, hey, we just want to thank you guys again, those folks who are players on Patreon, everybody who's listening to this episode. These stories are just amazing. We want to thank everybody. So thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all. The Game of Crimes. 